0: chapter forty three of oliver twist by charles dickens this LibriVox recording is in the public domain recording by Tig hines wherein is shown how the artful dodger got into trouble and so it was you that was your own friend was it asked mr claypole otherwise Bolter, when by virtue of the compact entered into between them he had removed next day to fagin's house i thought as much last night "'Every man's his own friend, my dear,' replied Fagin, with his most insinuating grin. "'He hasn't as good a one as himself, anywhere.' "'Except sometimes,' replied Morris Bolter, assuming the air of a man of the world. "'Some people are nobody's enemies but their own, you know.' "'Don't believe that,' said Fagin. "'When a man's his own enemy, it's only because he's too much his own friend, "'not because he's careful for everybody but himself. "'There ain't such a thing in nature.' It oughtn't to be, if there is,' replied Mr. Bolter. "'That stands to reason. Some conjurers say that number three is the magic number, and some say number seven. It's neither, my friend, neither. It's number one.' "'Ha! <laughs> ha!' cried Mr. Bolter. "'Number one for ever?' "'In a little community like ours, my dear,' said Fagin, who felt it necessary to qualify this position, "'we have a general number one. "'That is, you can't consider yourself as number one without considering me as the same, and all the other young people.' "'Now the devil!' exclaimed Mr. Bolter. "'You see,' pursued Fagin, affecting to disregard this interruption, "'we are so mixed up together, and identified in our interests, that it must be so. For instance, it is your object to take care of number one, meaning yourself.' "'Certainly,' replied Mr. Bolter. "'You're about right there.' well you can't take care of yourself number one without taking care of me number one number two you mean replied mr bolter who was largely endowed with the quality of selfishness no i don't retorted fagin i'm of the same importance to you as you are to yourself oh say interrupted mr bolter you're a very nice man and i'm very fond of you but we ain't quite so fit together as all that comes to only think, said Fagin, shrugging his shoulders and stretching out his hands, only consider. You've done what's a very pretty thing, and what I love you for doing, but what at the same time would put the cravat about your throat, that's so very easily tied, and so very difficult to unloose. In plain English, the halter." Mr. Boulter put his hand to his neckerchief, as if he felt it inconveniently tight, and murmured an assent, qualified in tone, but not in substance. "'The gallows,' continued Fagin, "'the gallows, my dear, is an ugly finger-post which points out a very short and sharp turning that has stopped many a bold fellow's career in the broad highway. To keep in the easy road, and keep it at a distance, is object number one with you.' "'Of course it is,' replied Mr. Bolter. "'What do you talk about such things for?' "'Only to show you my meaning clearly,' said the Jew, raising his eyebrows. "'To be able to do that you depend upon me.' "'To keep my little business old snug, I depend on you. "'The first is your number one, the second my number one. "'The more you value your number one, the more careful you must be of mine. "'So we come at last to what I told you at first, "'that a regard for number one holds us all together, "'and must do so unless we would all go to pieces in company.' "'That's true,' rejoined Mr. Bolter thoughtfully. "'Oh, you're a cunning old codger.' Mr. Fagin saw, with delight, that this tribute to his power was no mere compliment, but that he had really impressed his recruit with a sense of his wily genius, which it was most important that he should entertain in the outset of their acquaintance. To strengthen an impression so desirable and useful, he followed up the blow by acquainting him in some detail with the magnitude and extent of his operations, blending truth and fiction together as best served his purpose, and bringing both to bear with so much art that Mr. Boulter's respect visibly increased, and became tempered at the same time with a degree of wholesome fear, which it was highly desirable to awaken. "'It's this mutual trust that we have in each other that consoles me under heavy losses,' said Fagin. "'My best hand was taken from me yesterday morning.' "'You don't mean to say he died,' cried Mr. Boulter. "'No, no,' replied Fagin. "'Not so bad as that. Not quite so bad.' "'What?' I suppose he was—' Wanted?' interposed Fagin. Yes, he was wanted. Very particular? inquired Mr. Bolter. No, replied Fagin. Not very. He was charged with attempting to pick a pocket, and they found a silver snuff-box on him. His own, my dear, his own, for he took snuff himself, and was very fond of it. They remanded him till to-day, for they thought they knew the owner. "'Bah, he was worth fifty boxes, and I'd give the price of as many to have him back. "'You should have known the Dodger, my dear. "'You should have known the Dodger.' "'Well, but I shall know him, I hope. "'Don't you think so?' said Mr. Boulter. "'I'm doubtful about it,' replied Fagin, with a sigh. "'If they don't get any fresh evidence, it'll only be a summary conviction, "'and we shall have him back again after six weeks or so. "'But if they do, it's a case of lagging.' they know what a clever lad he is he be a lifer they'll make the artful nothing less than a lifer what do you mean by a lagging in a lifer demanded mr boulter what's the good of talking in that way to me why don't you speak so as i can understand you fagin was about to translate these mysterious expressions into the vulgar tongue and being interpreted mr boulter would have been informed that they represented the combination of words transportation for life when the dialogue was cut short by the entry of master Bates with his hands in his breeches' pockets and his face twisted into a look of semi-comical woe. "'Is all up, Fagin?' said Charlie, when he and his new companion had been made known to each other. "'What do you mean?' "'They found the gentleman as owns the box. Two or three mores are comin to identify him, and the artfuls booked for the passage out,' replied Master Bates. "'I must have a full suit o' morning, Fagin, and a hatband to wizard him in, afore he sets out upon his travels. To think of it, Jack Dawkins! Lummy Jack, the Dodger, the Artful Dodger, going abroad for a common 2 sneeze-box. I never thought he'd would done it under a gold-watch chain and seals at the lowest. Oh, why didn't he rob some rich old gentleman of all his valuables, and go out as a gentleman, not like a common prig, without no honour no glory?" With this expression of feeling for his unfortunate friend, Master Bates sat himself on the nearest chair with an aspect of chagrin and despondency. "'What do you talk about as having neither honour nor glory for?' exclaimed Fagin, darting an angry look at his pupil. "'Wasn't he always the top sawyer among you all? Is there one of you that could touch him or come near him on any sense, eh?' "'Not one,' replied Master Bates, in a voice rendered husky by regret. "'Not one.' "'Then what do you talk of?' replied Fagin angrily. "'What are you blubbering for?' "'Cause it isn't on the record, is it?' said Charlie, chafed into perfect defiance of his venerable friend by the current of his regrets. Cause it ain't come out in the because 'Cause nobody'll ever know half of what he was. How will he stand in the New Cake calendar? Uh, perhaps not be there at all. Oh my eye, my eye, what a blow it is. <laughs> cried Fagin, extending his right hand, and turning to Mr Boulter in a fit of chuckling, which shook him as though he had the palsy. See what pride they take in their profession, my dear? Ain't it beautiful?" <laughs> Mr. Boulter nodded assent, and Fagin, after contemplating the grief of Charlie Bates for some seconds with evident satisfaction, stepped up to that young gentleman and patted him on the shoulder. "'Never mind, Charlie,' said Fagin soothingly, "'it'll come out. It'll be sure to come out. They all know what a clever lad he was. He'd show it himself, and not disgrace his old pals and teachers.' "'Think how young he is, too! "'What a distinction, Charlie, to be lagged at his time of life!' "'Well, it is an honour, that is,' said Charlie, a little consoled. "'He shall have all he wants,' continued the Jew. "'He shall be kept in the stone jug, Charlie, like a gentleman, like a gentleman, "'with his beer every day, and money in his pocket to pitch and toss with, if he can't spend it.' "'Now, shall he, though?' cried Charlie Bates. Ay, that he shall!' "'replied Fagin, and we'll have a big wig, Charlie, "'one that's got the greatest gift of the gab to carry on his defence, "'and he'll make a perfect speech for himself, too, if he likes, "'and we'll read it all in the papers. Artful Dodger, shrieks of laughter, Here the coat was convulsed, eh, hey, Charlie, eh?' "'Ha, ha, ha!' laughed Master Bates. "'What a laugh that would be, wouldn't it, Fagin? "'I say, how the artful would bother them, wouldn't he?' "'Would!' cried Fagin. "'He shall, he will!' Ah, to be sure so he will repeated Charlie, rubbing his hands i think i see him now cried the jew bending his eyes upon his pupil so do i cried Charlie bates ah, so do i i see it all afore me upon my soul i do fagin what a game what a regular game all the big-wigs trying to look solemn and jack dawkins addressing of em as intimate and comfortable as if he was the judge's own son making a speech after dinner <laughs> In fact, Mr. Fagin had so well humoured his young friend's eccentric disposition, that Master Bates, who had at first been disposed to consider the imprisoned dodger rather in the light of a victim, now looked upon him as the chief actor in a scene of most uncommon and exquisite humour, and felt quite impatient for the arrival of the time when his old companion should have so favourable an opportunity of displaying his abilities. "'We must know how he gets on to-day, by some handy means or other,' said Fagin. "'Let me think. Shall I go?' asked Charlie. "'Not for the world,' replied Fagin. "'Are you mad, my dear, stark mad, that you'd walk into the very place where—' "'No, Charlie, no, one is enough to lose at a time.' "'You don't mean to go yourself, I suppose?' said Charlie, with a humorous leer. "'That wouldn't quite fit,' replied Fagin, shaking his head. "'Then why don't you send this new cove?' asked Master Bates, laying his hand on Noah's arm. "'Nobody knows him.' "'Why?' "'If he didn't mind,' observed Fagin. "'Mind?' interposed Charlie. "'What should he have to mind?' "'Really nothing, my dear,' said Fagin, turning to Mr. Bolter. "'Really nothing?' "'Oh, I dare say about that, you know,' observed Noah, backing towards the door and shaking his head with a kind of sober alarm. "Now, now, none of that. It's not my department, that ain't.' "'What department has he got, Fagin?' inquired Master Bates, surveying Noah's lank form with much disgust the cutting away when there's anything wrong and the eating of all the whittles when there's everything right is that his branch never mind retorted mr Boulter. and don't you take liberties with your superiors little boy or you'll find yourself in the wrong shop master bates laughed so vehemently at this magnificent threat that it was some time before fagin could interpose and represent to mr boulder that he incurred no possible danger in visiting the police office that, inasmuch as no account of the little affair in which he had engaged, nor any description of his person, had yet been forwarded to the metropolis, it was very probable that he was not even suspected of having resorted to it for shelter, and that, if he were properly disguised, it would be as safe a spot for him to visit as any in London, inasmuch as it would be, of all places, the very last to which he could be supposed likely to resort of his own free will. Persuaded in part by these representations, but overborne in a much greater degree by his fear of Fagin, Mr. Bolter at length consented, with a very bad grace, to undertake the expedition. By Fagin's directions he immediately substituted for his own attire a waggoner's frock, velveteen breeches, and leather leggings, all of which articles the Jew had at hand. He was likewise furnished with a felt hat well garnished with turnpike-tickets, and a carter's whip. Thus equipped, he was to saunter into the office, as some country fellow from Covent Garden Market might be supposed to do, for the gratification of his curiosity, and as he was as awkward, ungainly, and raw-boned a fellow as need be, Mr. Fagin had no fear but that he would look the part to perfection. These arrangements completed, he was informed of the necessary signs and tokens by which to recognise the artful Dodger, and was conveyed by master Bates through dark and winding ways, to within a very short distance of Bow Street. Having described the precise situation of the office, and accompanied it with copious directions, how he was to walk straight up the passage, and when he got into the yard, take the door up the steps on the right-hand side, and pull off his hat as he went into the room, Charlie Bates bade him hurry on alone, and promised to bide his return on the spot of their parting. Noah Claypole, or Morris Bolter, as the reader pleases, punctually followed the directions he had received, which, Master Bates being pretty well acquainted with the locality, were so exact that he was able to gain the magisterial presence without asking any question, or meeting with any interruption by the way. He found himself jostled among a crowd of people, chiefly women, who were huddled together in a dirty, frowsy room, at the upper end of which was a raised platform railed off from the rest, with a dock for the prisoners on the left hand against the wall, a box for the witnesses in the middle, and a desk for the magistrates on the right. The awful locality last named being screened off by a partition which concealed the bench from the common gaze, and left the vulgar to imagine, if they could, the full majesty of justice. There were only a couple of women in the dock, who were nodding to their admiring friends while the clerk read some depositions, to a couple of policemen and a man in plain clothes who leant over the table. A jailer stood reclining against the dock rail, tapping his nose listlessly with a large key, except when he repressed an undue tendency to conversation among the idlers by proclaiming silence, or looked sternly up to bid some woman, Take that baby out when the gravity of justice was disturbed by feeble cries, half smothered in the mother-shawl from some meagre infant. The room smelt close and unwholesome, the walls were dirt-discoloured, and the ceiling blackened. There was an old smoky bust over the mantel-shelf, and a dusty clock above the dock, the only thing present that seemed to go on as it ought, for depravity or poverty or the habitual acquaintance with both had left a taint on all the animate matter, hardly less unpleasant than the thick, greasy scum on every inanimate object that frowned upon it. Noah looked eagerly about him for the dodger, but although there were several women, who would have done very well for that distinguished character's mother or sister, and more than one man who might be supposed to bear a strong resemblance to his father, nobody at all answering the description given him of Mr. Dawkins was to be seen. He waited in a state of much suspense and uncertainty until all the women, being committed for trial, went flaunting out, and then was quickly relieved by the appearance of another prisoner, who he felt at once could be no other than the object of his visit. It was indeed Mr. Dawkins, who, shuffling into the office with the big coat-sleeves tucked up as usual, his left hand in his pocket, and his hat in his right hand, preceded the gaoler, with a rolling gait altogether indescribable, and taking his place in the dock, requested in an audible voice to know what he was placed in that ere disgraceful situation for. "'Hold your tongue, will you,' said the gaoler. "'I'm an Englishman, ain't I?' rejoined the dodger. "'Where are my privileges?' you get your privileges soon enough,' retorted the gaoler. "'And pepper with em. "'We'll see what the secretary of state for the Home Affairs has got to say to the beaks if I don't,' replied Mr. Dawkins. "'Now, then, what is this ere business?' I shall thank the magistrates to dispose of this little ere affair, and not to keep me while they read the paper, for I've got an appointment with a gentleman in the city, and as I am a man of my word and very punctual in business matters, he'll go away if I ain't there to my time, and then perhaps there won't be an action for damage against them as kept me away. Oh now certainly not. At this point the Dodger, with a show of being very particular with a view to proceedings to be had thereafter, desired the jailer to communicate the names of them two files as was on the bench which so tickled the spectators, that they laughed almost as heartily as Master Bates could have done if he had heard the request. "'Silence there!' cried the jailer. "'What is this?' inquired one of the magistrates. "'A pickpocketing case, your worship.' Has the boy ever been here before?" "'He ought to have been a many times,' replied the jailer. "'He has been pretty well everywhere else. I know him well, your worship.' "'Oh, you know me, do you?' cried the artful making a note of the statement, very good. That's a case of deformation of character, anyway." Here there was another laugh, and another cry of silence. "'Now, then, where are the witnesses?' said the clerk. "'Ah, that's right,' said the dodger. "'Where are they? I should like to see them.' This wish was immediately gratified, for a policeman stepped forward, who had seen the prisoner attempt the pocket of an unknown gentleman in a crowd, and indeed taken a handkerchief therefrom which, being a very old one, he deliberately put back again, after trying it on his own countenance. For this reason he took the dodger into custody as soon as he could get near him, and the said dodger, being searched, had upon his person a silver snuff-box, with the owner's name engraved upon the lid. This gentleman had been discovered on reference to the court guide, and being then and there present swore that the snuff-box was his and that he had missed it on the previous day the moment he had disengaged himself from the crowd before referred to. He had also remarked a young gentleman in the throng, particularly active in making his way about, and that young gentleman was the prisoner before him. Have you anything to ask the witness, boy? said the magistrate. I wouldn't abase myself by descending to hold no conversation with him, replied the dodger. Have you anything to say at all? Do you hear his worship asking if you've anything to say? inquired the gaoler, nudging the silent dodger with his elbow. "'I beg your pardon?' said the dodger, looking up with an air of abstraction. "'Did you redress yourself to me, my man?' "'I never see such a out-and-out wagabond, your worship,' observed the officer with a grin. "'Do you mean to say anything, you young shaver?' "'No,' replied the dodger, "'not here, for this ain't the shop for justice. Besides which, my attorney is a-breakfasting this morning with the vice-president of the House of Commons but i shall have something to say elsewhere and so will he, and so will a very numerous and spectable circle of acquaintances as'll make them beaks wish they'd never been born or that they'd got their footmen to hang them up to their own ap pegs afore they let them come out this morning to try it upon me Thou'll- there he's fully committed interposed the clerk take him away come on said the gaoler oh ah i'll come on replied the dodger brushing his hat with the palm of his hand ah to the bench it's no use you're looking frightened i won't show no mercy not a hapert worth of it you'll pay for this my fine fellers i wouldn't be you for something i wouldn't go free now if you was to fall down on your knees and ask me here carry me off to prison take me away with these last words the dodger suffered himself to be led off by the collar threatening till he got into the yard to make a parliamentary business of it and then grinning in the officer's face with great glee and self-approval Having seen him locked up by himself in a little cell, Noah made the best of his way back to where he had left Master Bates. After waiting here some time he was joined by that young gentleman, who had prudently abstained from showing himself until he had looked carefully abroad from a snug retreat, and ascertained that his new friend had not been followed by any impertinent person. The two hastened back together to bear to Mr. Fagin the animating news that the Dodger was doing full justice to his bringing up. And establishing for himself a glorious reputation. End of chapter forty three. Chapter forty four of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tige Hines. The time arrives for Nancy to redeem her pledge to Rose Maylie. She fails. Adept as she was in all the arts of cunning and dissimulation, the girl Nancy could not wholly conceal the effect which the knowledge of the steps she had taken wrought upon her mind. She remembered that both the crafty Jew and the brutal Sykes had confided to her schemes which had been hidden from all others, in the full confidence that she was trustworthy and beyond the reach of their suspicion. Vile as those schemes were, desperate as were their originators, and bitter as were her feelings towards Fagin, who had led her, step by step, deeper and deeper down into an abyss of crime and misery, whence was no escape, still there were times when, even towards him, she felt some relenting, lest her disclosure should bring him within the iron grasp he had so long eluded, and he should fall at last, richly as he merited such a fate, by her hand. But these were the mere wanderings of a mind unable wholly to detach itself from old companions and associations, though unable to fix itself steadily on one object, and resolved not to be turned aside by any consideration. Her fears for Sykes would have been more powerful inducements to recoil while there was yet time. But she had stipulated that her secret should be rigidly kept. She had dropped no clue which could lead to his discovery. She had refused, even for his sake, a refuge from all the guilt and wretchedness that encompassed her. And what more could she do? She was resolved. Though all her mental struggles terminated in this conclusion, they forced themselves upon her again and again, and left their traces, too. She grew pale and thin even within a few days at times she took no heed of what was passing before her or no part in conversations where once she would have been the loudest at other times she laughed without merriment and was noisy without cause or meaning at others often within a moment afterwards she sat silent and dejected brooding with her head upon her hands while the very effort by which she roused herself told more forcibly than even these indications that she was ill at ease and that her thoughts were occupied by matters very different and distant from those in the course of discussion by her companions. It was Sunday night and the bell of the nearest church struck the hour. Sykes and the Jew were talking but they paused to listen. The girl looked up from the low seat on which she crouched and listened too. "'An hour this side of midnight,' said Sykes, raising the blind to look out and returning to his seat. "'Dark and heavy it is, too. A good night for business, this.' "'Ah!' replied Fagin. "'What a pity, Bill, my dear, that there's none quite ready to be done.' "'You're right, for once,' replied Sykes gruffly. "'It's a pity, for I'm in the humour, too.' Fagin sighed and shook his head despondingly. "'We must make up for lost time, when we got things into a good train. That's all I know,' said Sikes. "'That's the way to talk, my dear,' replied Fagin, venturing to pat him on the shoulder. "'It does me good to hear you.' "'Does you good, does it?' cried Sikes. "'Well, so be it.' ha! <laughs> ha!' laughed Fagin, as if he were relieved even by this concession. "'You're like yourself tonight, Bill, quite like yourself.' "'I don't feel like myself when you lay that withered old claw on my shoulder, so take it away,' said Sikes, casting off the Jew's hand. "'It makes you nervous, Bill. Reminds you of being nabbed, does it?' said Fagin, determined not to be offended. "'Reminds me of being nabbed by the devil,' returned Sikes. "'There never was another man with such a face as yours, unless it was your father, and I suppose he is singeing his grizzled beard by this time.' unless you came straight from the olden without any father at all betwixt you, which I shouldn't wonder at a bit.' Fagin offered no reply to this compliment, but, pulling Sykes by the sleeve, pointed his finger towards Nancy, who had taken advantage of the foregoing conversation to put on her bonnet, and was now leaving the room. "'Allo?' cried Sykes. "'Nance, where's the girl going at this time of night?' "'Not far.' "'What answer's that?' retorted Sykes. "D'ye hear me?' "'I don't know where,' replied the girl. "'Then I do,' said Sikes, more in the spirit of obstinacy than because he had any real objection to the girl going where she liked. "'Nowhere. Sit down.' "'I'm not well. I told you that before,' rejoined the girl. "'I want a breath of air.' "'Put your head out of the window,' replied Sikes. "'There's not enough there,' said the girl. "'I want it in the street.' "'Then you won't have it,' replied Sikes. With which assurance he rose, locked the door, took the key out, and, pulling her bonnet from her head, flung it upon the top of an old press. "'There,' said the robber. "'Now stop quietly where you are, will you?' "'It's not such a matter as a bonnet would keep me,' said the girl, turning very pale. "'What do you mean, Bill? "'Do you know what you're doing?' "'Now what I'm—' "'Ah!' Oh, said Sykes, turning to Fagin. "'She's out of her senses, you know. "'Oh, she don't talk to me in that way.' you'll drive me on to something desperate muttered the girl placing both her hands upon her breast as though to keep down by force some violent outbreak let me go will you this minute this instant now said sikes tell him to let me go fagin he had better it'll be better for him dear me cried nancy stamping her foot upon the ground hear you repeated sikes turning round in his chair to confront her Aye, "'And if I hear you for half a minute longer, the dog shall have such a grip on your throat "'as it'll tear some of that screaming voice out. "'What has come over you, you jade? What is it?' "'Let me go,' said the girl with great earnestness. "'Then, sitting herself down on the floor, before the door, she said, "'Bill, let me go. You don't know what you're doing. You don't, indeed. "'For only one hour. Do, do!' "'Cut my limbs off one by one!' Said Sykes, seizing her roughly by the arm, "If I don't think the girl's stark raving mad, get you up! Not till you let me go! Not till you let me go! Never, never!" screamed the girl. Sykes looked on for a minute, waiting his opportunity, and suddenly pinioning her hands, dragged her struggling and wrestling with him by the way into a small adjoining room, where he sat himself on a bench and thrusting her into a chair, held her down by force. She struggled and implored by turns until twelve o'clock had struck. And then, wearied and exhausted, ceased to contest the point any further. With a caution backed by many oaths to make no more efforts to go out that night, Sykes left her to recover at leisure and rejoined Fagin. "Phew," said the housebreaker, wiping the perspiration from his face. "What a precious strange gal that is!" "You may say that," Bill replied, Fagin thoughtfully. "You may say that. What did she take it into her head to go out tonight for? Do you think?" asked Sikes. "'Come, you should know her better than me. What does it mean?' "'Obstinacy. Woman's obstinacy, I suppose, my dear.' "'Well, I suppose it is,' growled Sikes. "'I thought I had tamed her, but she's as bad as ever.' "'Worse,' said Fagin thoughtfully. "'I never knew her like this, for such a little cause.' "'Nor I,' said Sikes. "'I think she's got a touch of that fever in her blood yet.' and I won't come out, say. Like enough?' "'I'll let her a little blood without troubling the doctor if she's took that way again,' said Sikes. Fagin nodded an expressive approval of this mode of treatment. "'She was hanging about me all day and all night, too, when I was stretched on my back, and you, like a black-hearted wolf as you are, kept yourself aloof,' said Sikes. "'We was poor, too, all the time, and I think, one way or other, it's worried and fretted her.' and that being shut up here as long has made her restless, eh?' "'That's it, my dear,' replied the Jew, in a whisper. "'Hush!' As he uttered these words the girl herself appeared and resumed her former seat. Her eyes were swollen and red, and she rocked herself to and fro, tossed her head, and after a little time burst out laughing. "'Why, now she's on the other track!' exclaimed Sykes, turning a look of excessive surprise on his companion. Fagin nodded to him to take no further notice just then, and in a few minutes the girl subsided into her accustomed demeanour. Whispering Sykes that there was no fear of her relapsing, Fagin took up his hat and bade him good-night. He paused when he reached the room door, and, looking round, asked if somebody would light him down the dark stairs. "'Light him down,' said Sykes, who was filling his pipe. "'It's a pity he should break his neck himself and disappoint the sightseers. Show him a light.' Nancy followed the old man downstairs with a candle. When they reached the passage he laid his finger on his lip and drawing close to the girl said in a whisper— "'What is it, Nancy, dear?' "'What do you mean?' replied the girl in the same tone. "'The reason of all this,' replied Fagin. "'If he—' he pointed with his skinny forefinger up the stairs—'is too hard with you. He's a brute, Nance, a brute beast. Why don't you—' Well." said the girl, as Fagin paused, with his mouth almost touching her ear and his eyes looking into hers. "'No matter just now, we talk of this again. You have a friend of me, Nance, a staunch friend. I have the means at hand, quiet and close. If you want revenge on those that treat you like a dog—like a dog, worse than his dog, for he humours him sometimes, come to me—I say, come to me, he is the mere hound of a day. "'But you know me of old, Nance.' "'I know you well,' replied the girl, without manifesting the least emotion. "'Good-night.' She shrank back as Fagin offered to lay his hand on hers, but said good-night again in a steady voice, and answering his parting look with a nod of intelligence, closed the door between them. Fagin walked towards his home, intent upon the thoughts that were working within his brain. He had conceived the idea, not from what had just passed, though that had tended to confirm him, but slowly and by degrees, that Nancy, wearied of the housebreaker's brutality, had conceived an attachment for some new friend. Her altered manner, her repeated absences from home alone, her comparative indifference to the interests of the gang for which she had once been so zealous, And added to these her desperate impatience to leave home that night at a particular hour, all favoured the supposition, and rendered it to him at least almost matter of certainty. The object of this new liking was not among his myrmidons. He would be a valuable acquisition with such an assistant as Nancy, and must, thus Fagin argued, be secured without delay. There was another, a darker object, to be gained. Sykes knew too much, and his ruffian taunts had not galled Fagin the less because the wounds were hidden. The girl must know well that if she shook him off she could never be safe from his fury, and that it would be surely wreaked to the maiming of limbs, or perhaps the loss of life, on the object of her more recent fancy. With a little persuasion, thought Fagin, what more likely than that she would consent to poison him? Women have done such things, and worse, to secure the same object before now there would be the dangerous villain, the man I hate, gone, another secured in his place, and my influence over the girl, with a knowledge of this crime to back it, unlimited." These things passed through the mind of Fagin during the short time he sat alone in the housebreaker's room, and with them uppermost in his thoughts he had taken the opportunity afterwards afforded him of sounding the girl in the broken hints he threw out at parting. There was no expression of surprise, no assumption of an inability to understand his meaning. The girl clearly comprehended it. Her glance at parting showed that, but perhaps she would recoil from a plot to take the life of Sykes, and that was one of the chief ends to be attained Now Thou, thought Fagin as he crept homeward, can I increase my influence with her? What new power can I acquire? Such brains are fertile expedients if without extracting a confession from herself he laid a watch discovered the object of her altered regard and threatened to reveal the whole history to Sykes, of whom she stood in no common fear unless she entered into his designs could he not secure her compliance i can said fagin almost aloud she durst not refuse me then not for her life not for her life i have it all the means are ready and shall be set to work i shall have you yet He cast back a dark look, and a threatening motion of the hand, towards the spot where he had left the bolder villain, and went on his way, busying his bony hands in the folds of his tattered garment, which he wrenched tightly in his grasp, as though there were a hated enemy crushed with every motion of his fingers. End of chapter 44 Chapter 45 of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tige Hines. Noah Claypole is employed by Fagin on a secret mission. The old man was up betimes next morning and waited impatiently for the appearance of his new associate, who, after a delay that seemed interminable, at length presented himself and commenced a voracious assault on the breakfast. Bolter said, Fagin drawing up a chair and seating himself opposite Morris Bolter. "'Well, here I am,' returned Noah. "'What's the matter? "'Don't you ask me to do anything till I've done eating. "'That's a great fault in this place. "'You never get time enough over your meals.' "'You can talk as you eat, can't you?' said Fagin, "'cursing his dear young friend's greediness from the very bottom of his heart. "'Oh, yes, I can talk. "'I go on better when I talk,' said Noah, "'cutting a monstrous slice of bread. "'Where's Charlotte?' "'Out!' said Fagin. "'I sent her out this morning with the other young woman, because I wanted us to be alone.' "'Now,' said Noah, "'I wish you would ordered her to make some buttered toast first. "'Well, talk away. You won't interrupt me.' There seemed indeed no great fear of anything interrupting him, as he had evidently sat down with a determination to do a great deal of business. "'You did very well yesterday, my dear,' said Fagin. "'Beautiful. Six shillings and ninepence penny on the very first day.' the kitchen-lay will be a fortune to you.' "'Don't you forget to add three pint-pots and a milk-can?' said Mr. Boulter. "'No, no, my dear. The pint-pots were great strokes of genius, but the milk-can was a perfect masterpiece.' "'Pretty well, I think, for a beginner,' remarked Mr. Boulter complacently. "'The pots I took off airy railings, and the milk-can was standing by itself outside a public-house.' I thought it might get rusty with the rain, or catch cold, you know, eh? <laughs> Fagin affected to laugh very heartily, and Mister Bolter, having had his laugh out, took a series of large bites, which finished his first hunk of bread and butter, and assisted himself to a second. I want you, Bolter," said Fagin, leaning over the table, "to do a piece of work for me, my dear, that needs great care and caution." I no, say," rejoined Bolter. Don't you go shoving me into danger, or sending me any more to your police officers. That don't suit me, that don't, and so I tell you. There's not the smallest danger in it, not the very smallest, said the Jew. It's only to dodge a woman. An old woman, demanded Mr. Bolter. A young one, replied Fagin. I can do that pretty well, I know, said Bolter. I was a regular cunning sneak when I was at school. What am I to dodge you for? Not to— "'Not to do anything, but to tell me where she goes, who she sees, and, if possible, what she says. To remember the street, if it is a street, or the house, if it is a house, and to bring back all the information you can.' "'What'll you give me?' asked Noah, setting down his cup and looking his employer eagerly in the face. "'If you do it well, a pound, my dear. One pound, said Fagin, wishing to interest him in the scent as much as possible. "'And that's what I never gave yet for any job or work where there wasn't valuable consideration to be gained.' "'Who is she?' inquired Noah. "'One of us.' "'Oh, no! cried Noah, curling up his nose. "'You're doubtful of it, are you? "'She has found out some new friends, my dear, and I must know who they are,' replied Fagin. "'I oh, see,' said Noah. "'Just to have the pleasure of knowing them, if they're respectable people, eh? <laughs> I'm your man.' "'I knew you would be,' cried Fagin, elated by the success of his proposal. "'Of course, of course,' replied Noah. "'Where is she? "'Where am I to wait for her? "'Where am I to go?' "'All that, my dear, you shall hear from me. "'I'll point her out to you at the proper time,' said Fagin. "'You keep ready and leave the rest to me.' That night, and the next, and the next again, the spy sat booted and equipped in his carter's dress, ready to turn out at a word from Fagin. Six nights passed, six long weary nights, and on each Fagin came home with a disappointed face and briefly intimated that it was not yet time. On the seventh he returned earlier and with an exultation he could not conceal. It was Sunday. She goes abroad tonight, said Fagin, and on the right errand, I'm sure, for she has been alone all day and the man she is afraid of will not be back much before daybreak. Come with me, quick. Noah started up without saying a word, for the Jew was in a state of such intense excitement that it infected him. They left the house stealthily and, hurrying through a labyrinth of streets, arrived at length before a public-house, which Noah recognised as the same in which he had slept on the night of his arrival in London. It was past eleven o'clock and the door was closed. It opened softly on its hinges as Fagin gave a low whistle. They entered without noise and the door was closed behind them. Scarcely venturing to whisper, but substituting dumb-show for words, Fagin and the young Jew who had admitted them pointed out the pane of glass to Noah, and signed to him to climb up and observe the person in the adjoining room. "'Is that the woman?' he asked, scarcely above his breath. Fagin nodded yes. "'I can't see her face well,' whispered Noah. "'She's looking down, and the candle is behind her.' "'Stay there,' whispered Fagin. He signed to Barney, who withdrew.' In an instant the lad entered the room adjoining and, under pretence of snuffing the candle, moved it in the required position and, speaking to the girl, caused her to raise her face. "'I see her now!' cried the spy. Plainly I should know it among a thousand. He hastily descended as the room door opened and the girl came out. Fagin drew him behind a small partition which was curtained off, and they held their breaths as she passed within a few feet of their place of concealment and emerged by the door at which they had entered. "'Psst!' cried the lad who held the door. "'Now!' Noah exchanged a look with Fagin and darted out. "'To the left!' whispered the lad. "'Take the left hand and keep on the other side.' He did so, and by the light of the lamps saw the girl's retreating figure already at some distance before him. He advanced as near as he considered prudent, and kept on the opposite side of the street, the better to observe her motions. She looked nervously round, twice or thrice, and once stopped to let two men who were following close behind her pass on. She seemed to gather courage as she advanced, and to walk with a steadier and firmer step. The spy preserved the same relative distance between them, and followed, with his eye upon her. End of chapter 45 Chapter 46 of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tige Hines. The Appointment Kept. The church clocks chimed three quarters past eleven as two figures emerged on London Bridge. One, which advanced with a swift and rapid step, was that of a woman who looked eagerly about her as though in quest of some expected object. The other figure was that of a man, who slunk along in the deepest shadow he could find and at some distance accommodated his pace to hers stopping when she stopped and as she moved again creeping stealthily on but never allowing himself in the ardour of his pursuit to gain upon her footsteps thus they crossed the bridge from the middlesex to the surrey shore when the woman apparently disappointed in her anxious scrutiny of the foot-passengers turned back the movement was sudden But he who watched her was not thrown off his guard by it, for shrinking into one of the recesses which surmount the piers of the bridge, and leaning over the parapet to better conceal his figure, he suffered her to pass on the opposite pavement. When she was about the same distance in advance as she had been before, he slipped quietly down and followed her again. At nearly the centre of the bridge she stopped—the man stopped too. It was a very dark night. The day had been unfavourable, and at that hour and place there were few people stirring. Such as there were hurried quickly past, very possibly without seeing, but certainly without noticing, either the woman or the man who kept her in view. Their appearance was not calculated to attract the importunate regards of such of London's destitute population as chanced to take their way over the bridge that night in search of some cold arch or doorless hovel wherein to lay their heads. They stood there in silence neither speaking nor spoken to by any one who passed. A mist hung over the river, deepening the red glare of the fires that burnt on the small craft moored off the different wharfs, and rendering darker and more indistinct the murky buildings on the banks. The old smoke-stained storehouses on either side rose heavy and dull from the dense mass of roofs and gables, and frowned sternly upon water too black to reflect even their lumbering shapes the tower of old St. Saviour's Church, and the spire of St. Magnus, so long the giant warders of the ancient bridge, were visible in the gloom. But the forest of shipping below the bridge, and the thickly scattered spires of churches above, were nearly all hidden from sight. The girl had taken a few restless turns to and fro, closely watched meanwhile by her hidden observer, when the heavy bells of St. Paul's tolled for the death of another day. Midnight had come upon the crowded city the palace, the night-cellar, the gaol, the madhouse, the chambers of birth and death, of health and sickness, the rigid face of the corpse, and the calm sleep of the child. Midnight was upon them all. The hour had not struck two minutes, when a young lady, accompanied by a grey-haired gentleman, alighted from a hackney carriage within a short distance of the bridge, and, having dismissed the vehicle, walked straight towards it. They had scarcely set foot upon its pavement when the girls started and immediately made towards them. They walked onward, looking about them with the air of persons who entertained some very slight expectation which had little chance of being realised, when they were suddenly joined by this new associate. They halted with an exclamation of surprise, but suppressed it immediately. For a man in the garments of a countryman came close up, brushed against them, indeed, at that precise moment. "'Not here!' said Nancy hurriedly. I am afraid to speak to you here. Come away, out of the public road. Down the steps yonder." As she uttered these words, and indicated with her hand the direction in which she wished him to proceed, the countryman looked round, and, roughly asking what they took up the whole pavement for, passed on. The steps to which the girl had pointed were those which, on the Surrey bank and on the same side of the bridge as St. Saviour's Church, form a landing-stairs from the river. To this spot the man bearing the appearance of a countryman hastened unobserved and after a moment's survey of the place he began to descend. These stairs are a part of the bridge. They consist of three flights. Just below the end of the second, going down, the stone wall on the left terminates in an ornamental plaster, facing towards the Thames. At this point the lower steps widen, so that a person turning that angle of the wall is necessarily unseen by any others on the stairs who chance to be above him, if only a step. The countryman looked hastily round when he reached this point, and as there seemed no better place of concealment, and, the tide being out, there was plenty of room, he slipped aside with his back to the pilaster, and there waited, pretty certain that they would come no lower, and that even if he could not hear what was said, he could follow them again with safety. So tardily stole the time in this lonely place, and so eager was the spy to penetrate the motives of an interview so different from what he had been led to expect that he more than once gave the matter up for lost, and persuaded himself either that they had stopped far above, or had resorted to some entirely different spot to hold their mysterious conversation. He was on the point of emerging from his hiding-place and regaining the road above, when he heard the sound of footsteps, and directly afterwards of voices almost close at his ear. He drew himself straight upright against the wall, and, scarcely breathing, listened attentively. "'This is far enough,' said a voice which was evidently that of the gentleman. "'I will not suffer the young lady to go any farther. Many people would have distrusted you too much to have come even so far. But, you see, I am willing to humour you.' "'To humour me!' cried the voice of the girl whom he had followed. you consider it, indeed, sir, to humour me. Well—well, well, it's no matter.' "'Why, for what?' said the gentleman, in a kinder tone. "'For what purpose can you have brought us to this strange place? Why not have let me speak to you above there, where there is light?' and there was something stirring instead of bringing us to this dark and dismal hole." "'I told you before,' replied Nancy, "'that I was afraid to speak to you there. I don't know why it is,' said the girl, shuddering, "'but I have such a fear and dread upon me tonight that I can hardly stand.' "'The fear of what?' asked the gentleman, who seemed to pity her. "'I scarcely know of what,' replied the girl, "'I wish I did, horrible thoughts of death, and shrouds with blood upon them and a fear that has made me burn as if I was on fire, I've been upon me all day. I was reading a book tonight to while away the time, and the same things came into the print.' "'Imagination,' said the gentleman, soothing her. "'No imagination,' replied the girl, in a hoarse voice. "'I'll swear I saw a coffin written in every page of the book, in large black letters. Ay, and they carried one close to me in the streets tonight. is nothing unusual in that,' said the gentleman. They have passed me often.' "'Real ones,' rejoined the girl. This was not—' There was something so uncommon in her manner that the flesh of the concealed listener crept as he heard the girl utter these words, and the blood chilled within him. He had never experienced a greater relief than in hearing the sweet voice of the young lady as she begged her to be calm, and not allow herself to become the prey of such fearful fancies. "'Speak to her kindly,' said the young lady to her companion. Poor creature she seems to need it your haughty religious people would have held their heads up to see me as i am to-night and preached of flames and vengeance cried the girl oh dear lady why aren't those who claim to be god's own folks as gentle and as kind to us poor wretches as you who having youth and beauty and all that they have lost might be a little proud instead of so much humbler ah said the gentleman a turk turns his face after washing it well to the east when he says his prayers. These good people, after giving their faces such a rub against the world as to take the smiles off, turn with no less regularity to the darkest side of heaven. Between the Mussulman and the Pharisee, commend me to the first. These words appeared to be addressed to the young lady, and were perhaps uttered with the view of affording Nancy time to recover herself. The gentleman, shortly afterwards, addressed himself to her. "'You were not here last Sunday night,' he said. "'I couldn't come,' replied Nancy. "'I was kept by force.' "'By whom?' "'In that I told the young lady of before.' "'You were not suspected of holding any communication with anybody on the subject which has brought us here tonight. I hope?' asked the old gentleman. "'Now,' replied the girl, shaking her head, "'it's not very easy for me to leave him unless he knows why. I couldn't have seen the lady when I did, but that I gave him a drink of laudanum before I came away.' "'Did he awake before you returned?' inquired the gentleman. Now, and neither he nor any of them suspect me." "'Good,' said the gentleman. Now, listen to me." "'I am ready,' replied the girl, as he paused for a moment. "'This young lady,' the gentleman began, "'has communicated to me, and to some other friends who can be safely trusted, what you told her nearly a fortnight since. I confess to you that I had doubts at first whether you were to be implicitly relied upon, but now I firmly believe you are.' "'I am,' said the girl, earnestly. "'I repeat that I firmly believe it. To prove to you that I am disposed to trust you, I tell you without reserve that we propose to extort the secret, whatever it may be, from the fear of this man monks. But if—if,' said the gentleman, "'he cannot be secured, or, if secured, cannot be acted upon as we wish, you must deliver up the Jew." "'Fagin!' cried the girl, recoiling. "'That man must be delivered up by you,' said the gentleman. I will not do it, I will never do it. replied the girl, devil that he is, and worse than the devil as he has been to me, I will never do that. You will not said the gentleman, who seemed fully prepared for this answer. Never returned the girl. tell me why, for one reason, rejoined the girl firmly, for one reason that the lady knows and will stand by me and I know she will, for I have her promise, and for this other reason, besides that bad life as he has led, I have led a bad life too. There are many of us who have kept the same courses together, and I'll not turn upon them who might, any of them, have turned upon me, but didn't, bad as they are.' Then said the gentleman quickly, as if this had been the point he had been aiming to attain, put monks into my hands, and leave him to me to deal with. What if he turns against the others? I promise you that in that case, if the truth is forced from him, there the matter will rest. There must be circumstances in Oliver's little history which it would be painful to drag before the public eye. And if the truth is once elicited, they shall go scot-free.' "'And if it is not,' suggested the girl, "'then,' pursued the gentleman, "'this Fagin shall not be brought to justice without your consent. In such a case I would show you reasons, I think, which would induce you to yield it.' "'Have I the lady's promise for that?' asked the girl. "'You have,' replied Rose, "'my true and faithful pledge.' "'Monks would never learn how you knew what you do,' said the girl, after a short pause never replied the gentleman the intelligence would be so brought to bear upon him that he could never even guess i have been a liar and among liars from a little child said the girl after another interval of silence but i will take your words after receiving an assurance from both that she might safely do so she proceeded in a voice so low that it was often difficult for the listener to discover even the purport of what she said to describe by name and situation the public-house whence she had been followed that night From the manner in which she occasionally paused, it appeared as if the gentleman were making some hasty notes of the information she communicated. When she had thoroughly explained the localities of the place, the best position from which to watch it without exciting observation, and the night and hour on which monks was most in the habit of frequenting it, she seemed to consider for a few moments, for the purpose of recalling his features and appearances more forcibly to her recollection. "'He is tall,' said the girl, "'and a strongly made man, but not stout.' He has a lurking walk, and as he walks constantly looks over his shoulder, first on one side and then on the other. Don't forget that, for his eyes are sunk in his head so much deeper than any other man's that you might almost tell him by that alone. His face is dark, like his hair and eyes, and although he can't be more than six or eight-and-twenty, withered and haggard, His lips are often discoloured and disfigured with the marks of teeth, for he has desperate fits and sometimes even bites his hands and covers them with wounds. "'Why did you start?' said the girl, stopping suddenly. The gentleman replied, in a hurried manner, that he was not conscious of having done so, and begged her to proceed. "'Part of this,' said the girl, "'I've drawn out from the other people at the house I tell you of, for I've only seen him twice, and both times he was covered up in a large cloak. I think that's all I can give you to know him by. "'Stay, though,' she added, "'upon his throat, so I that you can see a part of it below his neckerchief when he turns his face. There is—' A broad red mark, like a burn or scald!' cried the gentleman. "'How's this?' said the girl. "'You know him?' The young lady uttered a cry of surprise, and for a few moments they were so still that the listener could distinctly hear them breathe. "'I think so,' said the gentleman, breaking silence. "'I should, by your description. We shall see. Many people are singularly like each other. It may not be the same.' As he expressed himself to this effect, with assumed carelessness, He took a step or two nearer the concealed spy, as the latter could tell from the distinctness with which he heard him mutter, it must be he. Now, he said, returning, so it seemed by the sound, to the spot where he had stood before, you have given us most valuable assistance, young woman, and I wish you to be the better for it. What can I do to serve you? Nothing, replied Nancy. You will not persist in saying that rejoined the gentleman, with a voice and emphasis of kindness, that might have touched a much harder and more obdurate heart. "'Think now—tell me.' "'Nothing, sir,' rejoined the girl, weeping. "'You can do nothing to help me. I am past all hope, indeed.' "'You put yourself beyond its pale,' said the gentleman. "'The past has been a dreary waste to you, of youthful energies misspent, and such priceless treasures lavished as the Creator bestows but once and never grants again but for the future you may hope. I do not say that it is in our power to offer you peace of heart and mind, for that must come as you seek it, but a quiet asylum, either in England, or, if you fear to remain here in some foreign country, is not only within the compass of our ability, but our most anxious wish to secure you. Before the dawn of morning, before this river wakes to the first glimpse of daylight, you should be placed as entirely beyond the reach of your former associates and leave as utter an absence of all traces behind you as if you were to disappear from the earth this moment come i would not have you go back to exchange one word with any old companion or take one look at any old haunt or breathe the very air which is pestilence and death to you quit them all while there is time and opportunity she will be persuaded now cried the young lady she hesitates i am sure i fear not my dear said the gentleman now sir i do not replied the girl, after a short struggle,—'I am chained to my old life. I loathe and hate it now, but I cannot leave it. I must have gone too far to turn back. And yet I don't know, for if you had spoken to me so some time ago I should have laughed it off.' "'But,' she said, looking hastily round,—'this fear comes over me again. I must go home.' "'Home,' repeated the young lady, with a great stress upon the word. "'Home, lady,' rejoined the girl to such a home as I have raised for myself with the work of my own life. Let us part. I shall be watched or seen. Go, go. If I have done you any service, all I ask is that you leave me, and let me to go on my way alone.' "'It is useless,' said the gentleman, with a sigh. "'We compromise her safety, perhaps, by staying here. We may have detained her longer than she expected already.' "'Yes, yes,' urged the girl, "'you have.' "'What,' cried the young lady, "'can be the end of this poor creature's life?' what repeated the girl look before you lady look at the dark water how many times do you read of such as i who spring into the tide and leave no living thing to care for or bewail them it may be years since or it may be only months but i shall come to that at last do not speak thus pray returned the young lady sobbing it will never reach your ears dear lady and god forbid such as should replied the girl good-night good-night The gentleman turned away. This purse, cried the young lady, take it for my sake, that you may have some resource in an hour of need and trouble. No, replied the girl, I have not done this for money. Let me have that to think of. And yet, give me something that you have worn. I should like to have something. No, no, not a ring. Your gloves or handkerchief. Anything that I can keep as has belonged to you, sweet lady. There, bless you. God bless you. Good night. Good night. The violent agitation of the girl and the apprehension of some discovery which would subject her to ill-usage and violence seemed to determine the gentleman to leave her as she requested. The sound of retreating footsteps were audible, and the voices ceased. The two figures of the young lady and her companion soon afterwards appeared upon the bridge. They stopped at the summit of the stairs. Hark! cried the young lady, listening. Did she call? I thought I heard her voice. "'No, my love,' replied Mr. Brownlow, looking sadly back. "'She has not moved, and will not till we are gone.' Rose Maylie lingered, but the old gentleman drew her arm through his, and led her, with gentle force, away. As they disappeared, the girl sunk down nearly at her full length upon one of the stone stairs, and vented the anguish of her heart in bitter tears. After a time she arose, and with feeble and tottering steps ascended to the street, The astonished listener remained motionless on his post for some minutes afterwards, and having ascertained with many cautious glances round him that he was again alone, crept slowly from his hiding-place, and returned stealthily in the shade of the wall in the same manner as he had descended. Peeping out more than once when he reached the top, to make sure that he was unobserved, Noah Claypole darted away at his utmost speed, and made for the Jew's house as fast as his legs would carry him. End of Chapter Forty Six. Chapter Forty Seven of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tig Hines. Fatal Consequences. It was nearly two hours before daybreak, that time which, in the autumn of the year, may be truly called the dead of night when the streets are silent and deserted, when even sounds appear to slumber, and profligacy and riot have staggered home to dream. It was at this still and silent hour that Fagin sat watching in his old lair, with face so distorted and pale, and eyes so red and bloodshot, that he looked less like a man than like some hideous phantom moist from the grave, and worried by an evil spirit. He sat crouching over a cold hearth, wrapped in an old torn coverlet, with his face turned towards a wasting candle that stood upon a table by his side. His right hand was raised to his lips, and as absorbed in thought he bit his long black nails, he disclosed among his toothless gums a few such fangs as should have been a dog's or a rat's. Stretched upon a mattress on the floor lay Noah Claypole fast asleep. Towards him the old man sometimes directed his eyes for an instant, and then brought them back again to the candle which, with a long burnt wick drooping almost double, and hot grease falling down in clots upon the table, plainly showed that his thoughts were busy elsewhere. Indeed they were—mortification at the overthrow of his notable scheme, hatred of the girl who had dared to palter with strangers, and utter distrust of the sincerity of her refusal to yield him up, bitter disappointment at the loss of his revenge on Sykes, the fear of detection and ruin and death, and a fierce and deadly rage kindled by all, these were the passionate considerations which, following close upon each other with rapid and ceaseless whirl, shot through the brain of Fagin, as every evil thought and blackest purpose lay working at his heart. He sat without changing his attitude in the least, or appearing to take the smallest heed of time, until his quick ear seemed to be attracted by a footstep in the street. At last! he muttered, wiping his dry and fevered mouth, At last! The bell rang gently as he spoke. He crept upstairs to the door, and presently returned, accompanied by a man muffled to the chin, who carried a bundle under one arm. Sitting down and throwing back his outer coat, the man displayed the burly frame of Sykes. There, he said, laying the bundle on the table, take care of that, and do the most you can with it. It's been trouble enough to get. I thought it should have been here three hours ago. Fagin laid his hand upon the bundle, and locking it in a cupboard, sat down again without speaking. But he did not take his eyes off the robber for an instant during this action. And now that they sat over against each other, face to face, he looked fixedly at him, with his lips quivering so violently, and his face so altered by the emotions which had mastered him, that the housebreaker involuntarily drew back his chair, and surveyed him with a look of real affright. "'What now?' cried Sykes. "'What do you look at a man so for?' Fagin raised his right hand and shook his trembling forefinger in the air. But his passion was so great that the power of speech was, for the moment, gone. "'Damn!' said Sykes, feeling in his breast with a look of alarm. "'He's gone mad. I must look to myself here.' "'Now—now!' rejoined Fagin, finding his voice. "'It's not—you're not the person, Bill. I've no—no no fault to find with you.' "'Oh, you haven't, haven't you?' said Sykes, looking sternly at him and ostentatiously passing a pistol into a more convenient pocket. That's lucky, for one of us. Which one that is don't matter. I've got that to tell you, Bill," said Fagin, drawing his chair nearer, "'will make you worse than me.' "Ay," returned the robber with an incredulous air, "'tell away. Look sharp, or Nance will think I'm lost.' "'Lost?' cried Fagin. "'She has pretty well settled that in her own mind already.' Sikes looked with an aspect of great perplexity into the Jew's face, and, reading no satisfactory explanation of the riddle there, clenched his collar in his huge hand and shook him soundly. "'Speak, will you,' he said, or if you don't, it shall be for want of breath. Open your mouth and say what you've got to say in plain words. Out with it, you thundering old cur! out with it. Suppose that lad that's lying there,' began Fagin. Sikes turned round to where Noah was sleeping, as if he had not previously observed him. "'Well,' he said, resuming his former position. "'Suppose that lad,' pursued Fagin, "'was to peach, to blow upon us all, first seeking out the right folks for the purpose, and then having a meeting with them in the street to paint our likenesses, describe every mark that they might know us by, and the crib where we might be most easily taken. Suppose he was to do all this, and besides, to blow upon a plant we've all been in, more or less of his own fancy.' not grabbed, trapped, tried, earwigged by the person, and brought to it on bread and water, but of his own fancy, to please his own taste, stealing out at nights to find those most interested against us, and peaching to them. Do you hear me?' cried the Jew, his eyes flashing with rage. "'Suppose he did all this. What then?' "'What then?' replied Sikes, with a tremendous oath. "'If he was left alive till I came, I'd grind his skull under the heel of my boot into as many grains as there are hairs upon his head.' if i did it cried fagin almost in a yell i that know so much and could hang so many besides myself i dunno replied sikes clenching his teeth and turning white at the mere suggestion i'd do something in the jail that'd get me put in irons and if i was tried along with you i'd fall upon you with em in the open court and beat your brains out of the people i should have such strength muttered the robber poising his brawny arm i could smash your head as if a loaded waggon had gone over it you would would i said the housebreaker try me if it was charley or the dodger or Betts or-i don't care who replied Sykes impatiently whoever it was i'd serve him the same fagin looked hard at the robber and motioning him to be silent stooped over the bed upon the floor and shook the sleeper to rouse him Sykes leant forward in his chair looking on with his hands upon his knees as if wondering much what all this questioning and preparation was to end in. "'Balter! Bouter, Poor lad!' said Fagin, looking up with an expression of devilish anticipation, and speaking slowly and with marked emphasis. "'He's tired—tired with tired watching for her so long—watching for her, Bill!' "'What do you mean?' asked Sykes, drawing back. Fagin made no answer, but bending over the sleeper again, hauled him into a sitting posture. When his assumed name had been repeated several times, Noah rubbed his eyes, and, giving a heavy yawn, looked sleepily about him.
1: "'Tell me that
0: again, once again, just for him to hear,' said the Jew, pointing to Sykes as he spoke. "'Tell you what?' asked the sleepy Noah, shaking himself pettishly. "'That about Nancy,' said Fagin, clutching Sykes by the wrist as if to prevent his leaving the house before he had heard enough. "'You followed her?' "'Yes.' "'To London Bridge?' Yes, where she met two people. So she did. A gentleman and a lady that she had gone to of her own accord before, who asked her to give up all her pals and monks first, which she did, and to describe them, which she did, and to tell her what house it was that we meet at and go to, which she did, and where it could be best watched from, which she did, and what time the people went there, which she did. She did all this. She told it all, every word without a threat, without a murmur, she did did she not cried fagin half mad with fury all right replied noah scratching his head that's just what it was what did they say about last sunday about last sunday replied noah considering why i told you that before again tell it again cried fagin tightening his grip on sikes and brandishing his other hand aloft as the foam flew from his lips they asked her said noah who, as he grew more wakeful, seemed to have a dawning perception who Sykes was. They asked her why she didn't come last Sunday as she promised. She said she couldn't. Why? Why? Tell him that, because she was forcibly kept at home by Bill, the man she had told them of before. Replied Noah. What more of him? cried Fagin. What more of the man she had told them of before? Tell him that. Tell him that. Why? That she couldn't very easily get out of doors unless he knew where she was going to. Said Noah and so the first time she went to see the lady she, <laughs> it made me laugh when she said it, that it did. She gave him a drink of laudanum.' "'Hell's fire!' cried Sykes, breaking fiercely from the Jew. "'Let me go!' Flinging the old man from him, he rushed from the room and darted wild and furiously up the stairs. "'Bill! Bill!' cried Fagin, following him hastily. "'A word! Only a word!' The word would not have been exchanged but that the housebreaker was unable to open the door, on which he was expending fruitless oaths and violence, when the Jew came panting up. "'Let me out,' said Sikes. "'Don't speak to me, it's not safe. Let me out, I say.' "'Hear me speak a word,' rejoined Fagin, laying his hand upon the lock. "'You won't be—' "'Well,' replied the robber, "'you won't be too violent, Bill.' The day was breaking, and there was light enough for the men to see each other's faces. They exchanged one brief glance. There was a fire in the eyes of both which could not be mistaken. i mean, said Fagin, showing that he felt all disguise was now useless. "'Not too violent for safety. Be crafty, Bill, and not too bold.' Sykes made no reply, but pulling open the door, of which Fagin had turned the lock, dashed into the silent streets without one pause or moment's consideration, without once turning his head to the right or left, without raising his eyes to the sky or lowering them to the ground, but looking straight before him with savage resolution, his teeth so tightly compressed that the strained jaw seemed starting through his skin, the robber held on his headlong course nor muttered a word nor relaxed a muscle until he reached his own door. He opened it softly with a key, strode lightly up the stairs, and entering his own room, double-locked the door and lifting a heavy table against it drew back the curtain of the bed. The girl was lying half-dressed upon it. He had roused her from her sleep, for she raised herself with a hurried and startled look. "'Get up!' said the man. "'Is it you, Bill?" said the girl, with an expression of pleasure at his return. "'It is,' was the reply. "'Get up!' There was a candle burning, but the man hastily drew it from the candlestick and hurled it under the grate. Seeing the faint light of early day without, the girl rose to undraw the curtain. "'Let it be,' said Sikes, thrusting his hand before her. "'There's enough light for what I've got to do.' "'Bill,' said the girl, in a low voice of alarm, "'why do you look like that at me?' The robber sat regarding her for a few seconds, with dilated nostrils and a heaving breast, and then, grasping her by the head and throat, dragged her into the middle of the room, and, looking once towards the door, placed his heavy hand upon her mouth. "'Bill! Bill!' gasped the girl, wrestling with the strength of mortal fear. "'I—I I won't scream or cry. Not once. Hear me. Speak to me. Tell me what I have done.' "'You know, you she-devil,' returned the robber, suppressing his breath. "'You were watched to-night. Every word you said was heard.' Then spare my life for the love of heaven as I spared yours,' rejoined the girl, clinging to him. Bill, Dear Bill, you cannot have the art to kill me. Oh, think of all I have given up, only this one night for you. You shall have time to think, and save yourself this crime. I will not loose my hold, you cannot throw me off. Bill, Bill, for dear God's sake, for your own, for mine, stop before you spill my blood. I have been true to you, upon my guilty soul I have." The man struggled violently to release his arms. But those of the girl were clasped round his, and, tear her as he would, he could not tear them away. "'Bill!' cried the girl, striving to lay her head upon his breast. "'The gentleman and that dear lady, they told me tonight of a home in some foreign country, where I could end my days in solitude and peace. Let me see them again, and beg them on my knees, to show the same mercy and goodness to you.' And let us both leave this dreadful place, and far apart leave better lives, and forget how we have lived, except in prayers, and never see each other no more. It's never too late to repent. They told me so. I feel it now. But we must have time, a little little time. The housebreaker freed one arm and grasped his pistol. The certainty of immediate detection if he fired flashed across his mind even in the midst of his fury and he beat it twice with all the force he could summon upon the upturned face that almost touched his own. She staggered and fell, nearly blinded with the blood that rained down from a deep gash in her forehead, but raising herself with difficulty on her knees, drew from her bosom a white handkerchief, Rose Maylie's own, and holding it up in her folded hands, as high towards heaven as her feeble strength would allow, breathed one prayer for mercy to her Maker. It was a ghastly figure to look upon. The murderer, staggering backwards to the wall and shutting out the sight with his hand, seized a heavy club and struck her down. End of Chapter Forty Seven. Chapter Forty Eight of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tig Hines. The Flight of Sykes. Of all bad deeds that, under cover of the darkness, had been committed within wide London's bounds since night hung over it, that was the worst. Of all the horrors that rose with an ill scent upon the morning air, that was the foulest and most cruel. The sun, the bright sun, that brings back not light alone, but new life and hope and freshness to man, burst upon the crowded city in clear and radiant glory. Through costly-coloured glass and paper-mended window, through cathedral dome and rotten crevice, it shed its equal ray. It lighted up the room where the murdered woman lay. It did. He tried to shut it out, but it would stream in. If the sight had been a ghastly one in the dull morning, what was it now in all that brilliant light? He had not moved, he had been afraid to stir. There had been a moan and a motion of the hand, and, with terror added to rage, He had struck and struck again, once he threw a rug over it, but it was worse to fancy the eyes and imagine them moving towards him than to see them glaring upward, as if watching the reflection of the pool of gore that quivered and danced in the sunlight on the ceiling. He had plucked it off again, and there was the body, mere flesh and blood no more, but such flesh and so much blood. He struck a light, kindled a fire, and thrust a club into it. There was hair upon the end, which blazed and shrunk into a light cinder, and, caught by the air, whirled up the chimney. Even that frightened him, sturdy as he was, but he held the weapon till it broke and then piled it on the coals to burn away and smoulder into ashes. He washed himself and rubbed his clothes. There were spots that would not be removed, but he cut the pieces out and burnt them. How those stains were dispersed about the room! The very feet of the dog were bloody. All this time he had never once turned his back upon the corpse. No, not for a moment. Such preparations completed, he moved backward towards the door, dragging the dog with him, lest he should soil his feet anew and carry out new evidence of the crime into the streets. He shut the door softly, locked it, took the key, and left the house. He crossed over and glanced up at the window, to be sure that nothing was visible from the outside. There was the curtain still drawn, which she would have opened to admit the light she never saw again. It lay nearly under there. He knew that. God, how the sun poured down upon the very spot. The glance was instantaneous. It was a relief to have got free of the room. He whistled on the dog and walked rapidly away. He went through Islington, strode up the hill to Highgate, on which stands the stone in honour of Whittington, turned down into Highgate Hill unsteady of purpose and uncertain where to go, struck off to the right again, almost as soon as he began to descend it, and, taking the footpath across the field, skirted cane wood, and so came on Hampstead Heath. Traversing the hollow by the Vale of Heath, he mounted the opposite bank, and crossing the road which joins the villages of Hampstead and Highgate, made along the remaining portion of the heath, to the field at North End in one of which he laid himself down under a hedge and slept. Soon he was up again and away, not far into the country, but back towards London by the high road, then back again, then over another part of the same ground as he already traversed, then wandering up and down the fields, and lying on ditches brinks to rest, and starting up to make for some other spot to do the same and ramble on again. Where could he go, that was near and not too public, to get some meat and drink? Hendon, That was a good place, not far off and out of most people's way. Thither he directed his steps, running sometimes and sometimes with a strange perversity, loitering at a snail's pace, or stopping altogether and idly breaking the hedges with a stick. But when he got there all the people he met, the very children at the doors, seemed to view him with suspicion. Back he turned again, without the courage to purchase bit or drop, though he had tasted no food for many hours and once more he lingered on the heath, uncertain where to go. He wandered over miles and miles of ground, and still came back to the old place. Morning and noon had passed, and the day was on the wane, and still he rambled to and fro, up and down, and round and round, and still lingered about the same spot. At last he got away, and shaped his course for Hatfield. It was nine o'clock at night when the man, quite tired out, and the dog, limping and lame from the unaccustomed exercise, turned down the hill by the church of the quiet village, and, plodding along the little street, crept into a small public house, whose scanty light had guided them to the spot. There was a fire in the tap-room, and some country labourers were drinking before it. They made room for the stranger, but he sat down in the furthest corner, and ate and drank alone, or rather with his dog, to whom he cast a morsel of food from time to time. The conversation of the men assembled there turned upon the neighbouring land and farmers, and when those topics were exhausted, upon the age of some old man who had been buried on the previous Sunday, the young men present considering him very old, and the old men present declaring him to have been quite young, not older, one white-haired grandfather said, than he was, with ten or fifteen years of life in him at least, if he had taken care, if he had taken care. There was nothing to attract attention or excite alarm in this. The robber, after paying his reckoning, sat silent and unnoticed in his corner and had almost dropped to sleep when he was half awakened by the noisy entrance of a newcomer. This was an antic fellow, half peddler and half mountebank, who travelled about the country on foot to vend hones, strops, razors, wash balls, harness paste, medicine for dogs and horses, cheap perfumery, cosmetics, and such like wares which he carried in a case slung to his back. His entrance was the signal for various homely jokes with the countryman, which slackened not until he had made his supper and opened his box of treasures when he ingeniously contrived to unite business with amusement. "'And what be that stuff? Good to eat, Harry?' asked the grinning countryman, pointing to some composition-cakes in one corner. "'This,' said the fellow producing one. This is the infallible and invaluable composition for removing all sorts of stain, rust, dirt, mildew, spick, speck, spot or spatter, from silk, satin, linen, cambric, cloth, crepe, stuff, carpet, merino, muslin, bombazine, or woollen stuff. Wine stains, fruit stains, beer stains, water stains, paint stains, pitch stains, any stains, all come out at one rub with the infallible and invaluable composition. If a lady stains her honour, she has only needs to swallow one cake and she's cured at once, for it's poison if a gentleman wants to prove this he has only need to bolt one little square and he has put it beyond question for it is quite as satisfactory as a pistol-bullet and a great deal nastier in the flavour consequently the more credit in taking it one penny a square with all these virtues one penny a square there were two buyers directly and more of the listeners plainly hesitated the vendor observing this increased his loquacity "'It's all bought up as fast as it can be made,' said the fellow. "'There are fourteen water mills, six steam engines, and a galvanic battery always a-working upon it. And they can't make it fast enough, though the men work so hard that they die off, and the widow's is pensioned directly, with twenty pound a year for each of the children, and a premium of fifty for twins. One penny a square. 2 halfpence is all the same, and four farthings is received with joy. One penny a square.' wine-stains fruit-stains beer-stains water-stains paint-stains pitch-stains mud-stains blood-stains there's a stain upon the hat of a gentleman and company that i'll take clean out before he can order me a pint of ale oi cried sykes starting up give that back i'll take it clean out sir replied the man winking to the company before you can come across the room and get it gentlemen all observe the dark stain upon this gentleman's hat no wider than a shilling but thicker than a half-crown whether it's a wine-stain, fruit-stain, beer-stain, water-stain, paint-stain, pitch-stain, mud-stain, or blood-stain." The man got no further, for Sikes, with a hideous imprecation, overthrew the table, and tearing the hat from him, burst out of the house. With the same perversity of feeling and irresolution that had fastened upon him despite himself all day, the murderer, finding that he was not followed, and that they most probably considered him some drunken sullen fellow, turned back up the town and getting out of the glare of the lamps of a stage-coach that was standing in the street, was walking past when he recognised the mail from London, and saw that it was standing at the little post-office. He almost knew what was to come, but he crossed over and listened. The guard was standing at the door, waiting for the letter-bag. The man, dressed like a gamekeeper came up at that moment, and he handed him a basket which lay ready on the pavement. "'That's for your people,' said the guard. Now, look alive in there, will you? Damn, that ere bag! It weren't ready night afore last. This won't do, you know. Anything new up in town, Ben?' asked the gamekeeper, drawing back to the window-shutters, the better to admire the horses. "'Ah, uh, no, nothing that I knows on,' replied the man, pulling on his gloves. "'Cones up a little. I hear talk of a murder, too, down Spitalfields Way, but I don't reckon much upon it.' "'Oh, that's quite true,' said a gentleman inside, who was looking out of the window. And a dreadful murder it was.' "'Was it, sir?' rejoined the guard, touching his hat. "'Man or woman, pray, sir?' "'A woman,' replied the gentleman. "'It is supposed—' "'Now, Ben,' replied the coachman impatiently. "'Damn that ere bag!' said the guard. "'Are you going to sleep in there?' "'Coming,' cried the office-keeper, running out. "'Coming?' growled the guard. And so's the young woman of property that's going to take a fancy to me, but I don't know when. Here, give old. All right!" The horn sounded a few cheerful notes, and the coach was gone. Sykes remained standing in the street, apparently unmoved by what he had just heard, and agitated by no stronger feeling than a doubt where to go. At length he went back again, and took the road which leads from Hatfield to St. Albans. He went on doggedly, but as he left the town behind him, and plunged into the solitude and darkness of the road, he felt a dread and awe creeping upon him, which shook him to the core. Every object before him, substance or shadow, still or moving, took the semblance of some fearful thing. But these fears were nothing compared to the sense that haunted him of that morning's ghastly figure following at his heels. He could trace its shadow in the gloom supply the smallest item of the outline, and note how stiff and solemn it seemed to stalk along. He could hear its garments rustling in the leaves, and every breath of wind came laden with that last low cry. If he stopped, it did the same. If he ran, it followed. Not running too that would have been a relief, but like a corpse endowed with the mere machinery of life, and borne on one slow, melancholy wind that never rose or fell. At times he turned with desperate determination, resolved to beat this phantom off, though it should look him dead. But the hair rose on his head and his blood stood still, for it had turned with him and was behind him then. He had kept it before him that morning, but it was behind him now, always. He leaned his back against the bank and felt that it stood above him, visibly out against the cold night sky. He threw himself upon the road, on his back upon the road. At his head it stood, silent, direct, and still, a living gravestone, with its epitaph in blood. Let no man talk of murderers escaping justice, and hint that Providence must sleep. There were twenty score of violent deaths in one long minute of that agony of fear. There was a shed in a field he passed, that offered shelter for the night. Before the door were three tall poplar-trees which made it very dark within, and the wind moaned through them with a dismal wail. He could not walk on till daylight came again, and here he stretched himself close to the wall to undergo new torture. For now a vision came before him, as constant and more terrible than that from which he had escaped, those widely staring eyes, so lustrousless and so glassy, that he had better borne to see them than to think upon them, appeared in the midst of the darkness light in themselves, but giving light to nothing. There were but two, but they were everywhere. If he shut out the sight there came the room with every well-known object, some indeed that he would have forgotten if he had gone over its contents from memory, each in its accustomed place. The body was in its place, and its eyes were as he saw them when he stole away. He got up and rushed into the field without. The figure was behind him. He re-entered the shed and shrunk down once more the eyes were there before he had laid himself along. And there he remained, in such terror as none but he can know, trembling in every limb, and the cold sweat starting from every pore, when suddenly there arose upon the night-wind a noise of distant shouting, and the roar of voices mingling in alarm and wonder. Any sound of men in that lonely place, even though it conveyed a real cause of alarm, was something to him. He regained his strength and energy at the prospect of personal danger, and springing to his feet, rushed into the open air. The broad sky seemed on fire. Rising into the air with showers of sparks and rolling one above the other were sheets of flame, lighting the atmosphere for miles round, and driving clouds of smoke in the direction where he stood. The shouts grew louder as new voices swelled the roar and he could hear the cry of fire mingled with the ringing of an alarm-bell the fall of heavy bodies and the crackling of flames as they twined round some new obstacle and shot aloft as though refreshed by food the noise increased as he looked there were people there men and women light bustle it was like new life to him he darted onward straight headlong dashing through briar and brake, and leaping gate and fence as madly as a dog, who careered with loud and sounding bark before him. He came upon the spot. There were half-dressed figures tearing to and fro, some endeavouring to drag the frightened horses from the stables, others driving the cattle from the yard and outhouses, and others coming laden from the burning pile, amidst the shower of falling sparks and the tumbling down of red-hot beams. The apertures where doors and windows stood an hour ago, disclosed a mass of raging fire. Walls rocked and crumbled into the burning well. The molten lead and iron poured down white-hot upon the ground. Women and children shrieked, and men encouraged each other with noisy shouts and cheers. The clanking of the engine-pumps and the spurting and hissing of the water as it fell upon the blazing wood added to the tremendous roar. He shouted, too, till he was hoarse and flying from memory and himself, plunged into the thickest of the throng. Hither and thither he dived that night, now working at the pumps, and now hurrying through the smoke and flame, but never ceasing to engage himself wherever noise and men were thickest. Up and down the ladders, upon the roofs of the buildings, over floors that quaked and trembled with his weight, under the lee of falling bricks and stones, in every part of that great fire was he. But he bore a charmed life, and had neither scratch, nor bruise, nor weariness, nor thought, till morning dawned again, and only smoke and blackened ruins remained. This mad excitement over, there returned with tenfold force the dreadful consciousness of his crime. He looked suspiciously about him, for the men were conversing in groups, and he feared to be the subject of their talk. The dog obeyed the significant beck of his finger, and they drew off stealthily together. He passed near an engine where some men were seated, and they called him to share in their refreshment. He took some bread and meat, and as he drank a draught of beer heard the firemen, who were from London, talking about the murder. "'He has gone to Birmingham, they say,' said one, but they'll have him yet, for the scouts are out, and by to-morrow night there'll be a cry all through the country.' He hurried off and walked till he almost dropped upon the ground, then lay down in a lane and had a long but broken and uneasy sleep. He wandered on again, irresolute and undecided, and oppressed with the fear of another solitary night. Suddenly he took the desperate resolution of going back to London. "'There's somebody to speak to there at all event,' he thought. A good hiding in place, too. They'll never expect to nab me there after this country's sent. Why can't I lie by for a week or so, and force him blunt from Fagin, get abroad to France? Damn, I'll risk it!' He acted upon this impulse without delay, and choosing the least frequented roads, began his journey back, resolved to lie concealed within a short distance of the metropolis, and entering it at dusk by a circuitous route, to proceed straight to that part of it which he had fixed on for his destination. The dog, though, if any description of him were out, it would not be forgotten that the dog was missing, and had probably gone with him. This might lead to his apprehension as he passed along the streets. He resolved to drown him, and walked on looking about for a pond, picking up a heavy stone and tying it to his handkerchief as he went. The animal looked up into his master's face while these preparations were making. Whether his instinct apprehended something of their purpose, or the robber's sidelong look at him was sterner than ordinary, he skulked a little farther in the rear than usual, and cowered as he came more slowly along. When his master halted at the brink of a pool, and looked round to call him, he stopped outright. "'Do you hear me, Cole? Come here!' cried Sykes. The animal came up from the very force of habit, but as Sykes stooped to attach the handkerchief to his throat, he uttered a low growl and started back. "'Come back!' said the robber. The dog wagged his tail but moved not. Sikes made a running noose and called him again. The dog advanced, retreated, paused an instant, and scoured away at his hardest speed. The man whistled again and again, and sat down and waited in the expectation that he would return, but no dog appeared, and at length he resumed his journey. End of chapter forty eight. CHAPTER forty nine OF OLIVER TWIST BY CHARLES DICKENS This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tig Hines. Monks and Mr. Brownlow at length meet. Their conversation and the intelligence that interrupts it. The twilight was beginning to close in when Mr. Brownlow alighted from a hackney coach at his own door and knocked softly. The door being opened, a sturdy man got out of the coach and stationed himself on one side of the steps while another man, who had been seated on the box, dismounted too, and stood upon the other side. At a sign from Mr. Brownlow they helped out a third man, and taking him between them hurried him into the house. This man was Monks. They walked in the same manner up the stairs without speaking, and Mr. Brownlow preceding them led the way into a back room. At the door of this apartment Monks, who had ascended with evident reluctance, stopped the two men looked at the old gentleman as if for instructions he knows the alternative said mr brownlow if he hesitates or moves a finger but as you bid him drag him into the street call for the aid of the police and impeach him as a felon in my name how dare you say this of me asked monks how dare you urge me to it young man replied mr brownlow confronting him with a steady look are you mad enough to leave this house unhand him there sir You are free to go, and we to follow. But I warn you, by all I hold most solemn and most sacred, that the instant you do I will have you apprehended on a charge of fraud and robbery. I am resolute and immovable. If you are determined to be the same, your blood be upon your own head." "'By what authority am I kidnapped in the street, and brought here by these dogs?' asked Monks, looking from one to the other of the men who stood beside him. "'By mine,' replied Mr. Brownlow, "'these persons are indemnified by me.' If you complain of being deprived of your liberty, you had power and opportunity to retrieve it as you came along, but you deemed it advisable to remain quiet. I say again, throw yourself for protection on the law. I will appeal to the law too, but when you have gone too far to recede, do not sue to me for leniency, when the power will have passed into other hands, and do not say I plunged you down the gulf into which you rushed yourself.' Monks was plainly disconcerted, and alarmed besides. He hesitated. "'You will decide quickly,' said Mr. Brownlow, with perfect firmness and composure. "'If you wish me to prefer my charges publicly, and consign you to a punishment the extent of which, although I can, with a shudder, foresee, I cannot control, once more, I say, you know the way. If not, and you appeal to my forbearance, and the mercy of those you have deeply injured, seat yourself without a word in that chair. It has waited for you two whole days.' Monks muttered some unintelligible words, but wavered still. You will be prompt," said Mr. Brownlow. A word from me, and the alternative is gone for ever. Still the man hesitated. "'I have not the inclination to parley,' said Mr. Brownlow, and, as I advocate the dearest interests of others, I have not the right.' "'Is there,' demanded Monks, with a faltering tongue, "'is there no middle course?' "'None.' Monks looked at the old gentleman with an anxious eye, but reading in his countenance nothing but severity and determination walked into the room, and, shrugging his shoulders, sat down. "'Lock the door on the outside,' said Mr. Brownlow to the attendants, and come when I ring. The men obeyed, and the two were left alone together. "'This is a pretty treatment, sir,' said Monks, throwing down his hat and cloak, from my father's oldest friend. "'It is because I was your father's oldest friend, young man,' returned Mr. Brownlow. It is because the hopes and wishes of young and happy years were bound up with him, and that fair creature of his blood and kindred, who rejoined her god in youth, and left me here a solitary lonely man. It is because he knelt with me beside his only sister's deathbed when he was yet a boy, on the morning that would, but Heaven willed otherwise, have made her my young wife. It is because my seared heart clung to him, from that time forth, through all his trials and errors, till he died. It is because old recollections and associations filled my heart, and even the sight of you brings with it old thoughts of him. It is because of all these things that I am moved to treat you gently now—yes, Edward Leiford, even now—and blush for your unworthiness who bear the name.' "'What has the name got to do with it?' asked the other, after contemplating, half in silence and half in dogged wonder, the agitation of his companion. "'What is the name to me?' "'Nothing,' replied Mr. Brownlow. "'Nothing to you. But it was hers. And even at this distance of time brings back to me an old man the glow and thrill which I once felt, only to hear it repeated by a stranger. I am very glad you have changed it—very, very.' "'This is all mighty fine,' said Monks, to retain his assumed designation, after a long silence, during which he had jerked himself in sullen defiance to and fro and Mr. Brownlow had sat shading his face with his hand. "'But what do you want with me?' "'You have a brother,' said Mr. Brownlow, rousing himself. "'A brother. The whisper of whose name in your ear, when I came behind you in the street, was, in itself, almost enough to make you accompany me hither, in wonder and alarm.' "'I have no brother,' replied Monks. "'You know I was an only child. Why do you talk to me of brothers? You know that as well as I. Attend to what I do know, and you may not.' said Mr. Brownlow. I shall interest you by and by. I know that, of the wretched marriage into which my family pride, and the most sordid and narrowest of all ambition, forced your unhappy father when a mere boy, you were the sole and most unnatural issue.' "'I don't care for hard names,' interrupted Monks, with a jeering laugh. You know the fact, and that's enough for me.' "'But I also know,' pursued the old gentleman, the misery, the slow torture, the protracted anguish of that ill-assorted union. I know how listlessly and wearily each of that wretched pair dragged on their heavy chain, through a world that was poisoned to them both. I know how cold formalities were succeeded by open taunts, how indifference gave place to dislike, dislike to hate, and hate to loathing, until at last they wrenched the clanking bond asunder, and, retiring a wide space apart, carried each a galling fragment, of which nothing but death could break the rivets, to hide it in new society beneath the gayest looks they could assume. Your mother succeeded—she forgot it soon—but it rusted and cankered at your father's heart for years." "'Well, they were separated,' said Monks. "'And what of that?' "'When they had been separated for some time,' returned Mr. Brownlow, and your mother, wholly given up to continental frivolities had utterly forgotten the young husband ten good years her junior, who, with prospects blighted, lingered on at home. He fell among new friends. This circumstance, at least, you already know. "'Not I,' said Monks, turning away his eyes and beating his foot upon the ground, as a man who is determined to deny everything. Not I. "'Your manner, no less than your actions, assures me that you have never forgotten it, or ceased to think of it with bitterness,' returned Mr. Brownlow. I speak of fifteen years ago, when you were not more than eleven years old, and your father but one-and-thirty, for he was, I repeat, a boy when his father ordered him to marry. Must I go back to events which cast a shade upon the memory of your parent, or will you spare it and disclose to me the truth?' "'I have nothing to disclose,' rejoined Monks. "'You must talk on, if you will.' "'These new friends, then,' said Mr. Brownlow, where a naval officer retired from active service, whose wife had died some half a year before and left him with two children, there had been more, but of all their family, happily but two survived. They were both daughters, one a beautiful creature of nineteen, and the other a mere child of two or three years old. What's this to me, asked the monks. They resided, said Mr. Brownlow, without seeming to hear the interruption in a part of the country to which your father, in his wandering, had repaired, and where he had taken up his abode. Acquaintance, intimacy, friendship fast followed on each other. Your father was gifted, as few men are. He had his sister's soul and person. As the old officer knew him more and more, he grew to love him. I would that it had ended there. His daughter did the same." The old gentleman paused. Monks was biting his lips, with his eyes fixed upon the floor. Seeing this, he immediately resumed. The end of the year found him contracted, solemnly contracted, to that daughter, the object of the first, true ardent, only passion of a guileless girl. "'Your tale is of the longest,' observed Monks, moving restlessly in his chair. "'It is a true tale of grief and trial and sorrow, young man,' returned Mr. Brownlow. "'And such tales usually are. If it were one of unmixed joy and happiness, it would be very brief. At length one of those rich relations, to strengthen whose interest and importance your father had been sacrificed, as others are often, it is no uncommon case, died, and to repair the misery he had been instrumental in occasioning, left him his panacea for all griefs—money. It was necessary that he should immediately repair to Rome, whither this man had sped for health, and where he had died leaving his affairs in great confusion. He went, was seized with mortal illness there, was followed the moment the intelligence reached Paris by your mother, who carried you with her. He died the day after her arrival, leaving no No will—no will—so that the whole property fell to her and you." At this part of the recital monks held his breath, and listened with a face of intense eagerness, though his eyes were not directed towards the speaker. As Mr. Brownlow paused he changed his position with the air of one who has experienced a sudden relief, and wiped his hot face and hands. Before he went abroad, and as he passed through London on his way, said Mr. Brownlow slowly, and fixing his eyes upon the other's face, he came to me. I never heard of that, interrupted Monks in a tone intended to appear incredulous, but savouring more of disagreeable surprise. He came to me, and left with me, among some other things, a picture a portrait painted by himself, a likeness of this poor girl, which he did not wish to leave behind, and could not carry forward on his hasty journey. He was worn by anxiety and remorse almost to a shadow, talked in a wild, distracted way of ruin and dishonour worked by himself, confided to me his intention to convert his whole property, at any loss, into money, and having settled on his wife and you a portion of his recent acquisition, to fly the country. I guessed too well he would not fly alone, and never see it more. Even from me he withheld any more particular confession, promising to write and tell me all, and after that to see me once again, for the last time on earth. Alas, that was the last time. I had no letter, and I never saw him more. "'I went,' said Mr. Brownlow, after a short pause. I went, when all was over, to the scene of his—I will use the term the world would freely use, for worldly harshness or favour are now alike to him—of his guilty love, resolved that if my fears were realised, that erring child should find one heart and home to shelter and compassionate her. The family had left that part a week before. They had called in such trifling debts as were outstanding, discharged them, and left the place by night. Why, or whither, none can tell. Monks drew his breath yet more freely, and looked round with a smile of triumph. "'When your brother,' said Mr. Brownlow, drawing nearer to the other's chair, "'when your brother, a feeble, ragged, neglected child, was cast in my way by a stronger hand than chance, and rescued by me from a life of vice and infamy—' "'What?' cried Monks. "'By me,' said Mr. Brownlow. "'I told you I should interest you before long. I say by me. I see that your cunning associate suppressed my name, although for aught he knew, it will be quite strange to your ears. When he was rescued by me, then, and lay recovering from sickness in my house, his strong resemblance to this picture I have spoken of struck me with astonishment. Even when I first saw him in all his dirt and misery, there was a lingering expression on his face that came upon me, like a glimpse of some old friend flashing on one in a vivid dream. I need not tell you, he was snared away before I knew his history. Why not? Asked Monks hastily. Because you know it well. I, denial to me is vain, replied Mister Brownlow. I shall show you that I know more than that. You, you can't prove anything against me, stammered Monks. I defy you to do it. We shall see, returned the old gentleman with a searching glance. I lost the boy, and no efforts of mine could recover him. Your mother being dead, I knew that you alone could solve the mystery if anybody could and as when i had last heard of you you were on your own estate in the west indies whither as you well know you retired upon your mother's debt to escape the consequences of vicious courses here i made the voyage you had left it months before and were supposed to be in london but no one could tell where i returned your agents had no clue to your residence you came and went they said as strangely as you had ever done sometimes for days together and sometimes not for months keeping to all appearance the same low haunts and mingling with the same infamous herd who had been your associates when a fierce ungovernable boy. I weary them with new applications, I paced the streets by night and day, but until two hours ago all my efforts were fruitless, and I never saw you for an instant.' "'And now you do see me,' said Monks, rising boldly. "'What then?' "'Fraud and robbery are high-sounding words. Justified, you think, by a fancied resemblance in some young imp to an idle daub of a dead man's? Brother, you don't even know that a child was born of this maudlin pair? You don't even know that?" "'I did not,' replied Mr. Brownlow, rising too. But within the last fortnight I have learnt it all. You have a brother, you know it, and him." There was a will which your mother destroyed, leaving the secret and the gain to you at her own death. It contained a reference to some child likely to be the result of this sad connection. Which child was born, and accidentally encountered by you, when your suspicions were first awakened by his resemblance to his father? You repaired to the place of his birth. There existed proofs, proofs long suppressed, of his birth and parentage. Those proofs were destroyed by you, and now, in your own words, to your accomplice, the Jew, the only proofs of the boy's identity lie at the bottom of the river, and the old hag that received them from the mother is rotting in her coffin. Unworthy son! coward! Liar! You, who hold your counsels with thieves and murderers in dark rooms at night, you, whose plots and wiles have brought a violent death upon the head of one worth millions such as you, you, who from your cradle were gall and bitterness to your own father's heart, and in whom all evil passions, vice, and profligacy festered, till they found a vent in a hideous disease which had made your face an index even to your mind, you, Edward Leeford, Do you still brave me?' "'No, no, no,' returned the coward, overwhelmed by these accumulated charges. "'Every word,' cried the old gentleman, "'every word that has passed between you and this detested villain is known to me. Shadows on the wall have caught your whispers and brought them to my ear. The sight of the persecuted child has turned vice itself, and given it the courage and almost the attributes of virtue. Murder has been done, to which you were morally, if not really, a party.' No. No! interposed Monks. I—I know nothing of that. I was going to inquire the truth of the story when you overtook me. I didn't know the cause. I thought it was a common quarrel." "'It was the partial disclosure of your secrets,' replied Mr. Brownlow. "'Will you disclose the whole?' "'Yes, I will.' "'Set your hand to a statement of truth and facts, and repeat it before witnesses.' "'That I promise too.' Remain quietly here, until such a document is drawn up, and proceed with me to such a place as I may deem most advisable for the purpose of attesting it.' "'If you insist upon that, I'll do that also,' replied Monks. "'You must do more than that,' said Mr. Brownlow. "'Make restitution to an innocent and unoffending child, for such he is, although the offspring of a guilty and most miserable love. You have not forgotten the provisions of the will. Carry them into execution, so far as your brother is concerned.' and then go where you please. In this world you need meet no more." While monks was pacing up and down, meditating with dark and evil looks on this proposal, and the possibilities of evading it, torn by his fears on the one hand and his hatred on the other, the door was hurriedly unlocked, and a gentleman, Mr. Losburn, entered the room in violent agitation. "'The man will be taken!' he cried. "'He will be taken to-night!' "'The murderer?' asked Mr. Brownlow. "Yes." "'Yes,' replied the other. "'His dog has been seen lurking about some old haunt, and there seems little doubt that his master either is or will be there under cover of the darkness. Spies are hovering about in every direction. I have spoken to the men who are charged with his capture, and they tell me he cannot escape. A reward of a hundred pounds is proclaimed by government to-night.' "'I will give fifty more,' said Mr. Brownlow, and proclaim it with my own lips upon the spot if I can reach it. Where is Mr. Mayley? Harry?" As soon as he had seen your friend here safe in a coach with you, he hurried off to where he heard this," replied the doctor, and mounting his horse, sallied forth to join the first party at some place in the outskirts agreed upon between them. "Fagin," said Mr. Brownlow, "what of him? When I last heard, he had not been taken, but he will be, or is by this time. They're sure of him." "Have you made up your mind?" asked Mr. Brownlow in a low voice of monks. "Yes," he replied. "You, you will be secret with me." I will. Remain here till I return. It is your only hope of safety." They left the room, and the door was again locked. "'What have you done?' asked the doctor, in a whisper. All that I could hope to do, and even more. Coupling the poor girl's intelligence with my previous knowledge, and the result of our good friend's inquiries on the spot, I left him no loophole of escape, and laid bare the whole villainy by which these lights became plain as day, Write on a point the evening after to-morrow at seven for the meeting. We shall be down there a few hours before, but shall require rest. Especially the young lady, who may have greater need of firmness than either you or I can quite foresee just now. But my blood boils to avenge this poor murdered creature. Which way have they taken? Drive straight to the office and you'll be in time,' replied Mr. Losberne. "'I will remain here.' The two gentlemen hastily separated, each in a fever of excitement, wholly uncontrollable. End of chapter 49 Chapter fifty of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens This LibriVox recording is in the public domain Recording by Tigh-Hinds. Pursuit and Escape Near to that part of the Thames on which the church at Rotherhide abuts, where the buildings on the banks are dirtiest, and the vessels on the river are blackest with the dust of colliers and the smoke of close built low roofed houses. There exists the filthiest, the strangest, the most extraordinary of the many localities that are hidden in London, wholly unknown even by name, to the great mass of its inhabitants. To reach this place the visitor has to penetrate through a maze of close, narrow and muddy streets, thronged by the roughest and poorest of waterside people, and devoted to the traffic they may be supposed to occasion. The cheapest and least delicate provisions are heaped in the shops. The coarsest and commonest articles of wearing apparel dangle at the salesman's door, and stream from the house parapet and windows. Jostling with unemployed labourers of the lowest class, ballast-heavers, coal-whippers, brazen women, ragged children, and the raff and refuse of the river, he makes his way with difficulty along, assailed by offensive sights and smells from the narrow alleys which branch off on the right and left and deafened by the clash of ponderous waggons that bear great piles of merchandise from the stacks of warehouses that rise from every corner. Arriving at length in streets remoter and less frequented than those through which he has just passed, he walks beneath tottering house-fronts, projecting over the pavement, dismantled walls that seem to totter as he passes, chimneys half-crushed, half-hesitating to fall windows guarded by rusty iron bars, that time and dirt have almost eaten away, every imaginable sign of desolation and neglect. In such a neighbourhood, beyond Dockhead, in the borough of Southwark, stands Jacob's Island, surrounded by a muddy ditch, six or eight feet deep, and fifteen or twenty wide when the tide is in, once called Mill Pond, but known in the days of this story as Folly Ditch. It is a creek or inlet from the Thames, and can always be filled at high water, by opening the sluices at the lead-mills from which it took its old name. At such times a stranger, looking from one of the wooden bridges thrown across it at Mill Lane, will see the inhabitants of the houses on either side, lowering from their back doors and windows, buckets, pails, domestic utensils of all kinds, in which to haul the water up, and when his eye is turned from these operations to the houses themselves, his utmost astonishment would be excited by the scene before him—crazy wooden galleries common to the backs of half a dozen houses, with holes from which to look upon the slime beneath, windows broken and patched, with poles thrust out on which to dry the linen that is never there, rooms so small, so filthy, so confined, that the air would seem too tainted even for the dirt and squalor which they shelter. Wooden chambers thrusting themselves out above the mud, and threatening to fall into it, as some have done. Dirt-besmeared walls, and decaying foundations. Every repulsive lineament of poverty, every loathsome indication of filth, rot, and garbage. All these ornament the banks of folly-ditch. In Jacob's Island the warehouses are roofless and empty. The walls are crumbling down. The windows are windows no more. The doors are falling into the streets, the chimneys are blackened, but they yield no smoke. Thirty or forty years ago, before losses and chancery suits came upon it, it was a thriving place, but now it is a desolate island indeed. The houses have no owners, they are broken open, and entered upon by those who have the courage, and there they live, and there they die. They must have powerful motives for a secret residence or be reduced to a destitute condition indeed who seek a refuge in Jacob's Island in an upper room of one of these houses a detached house of fair size ruinous in other respects but strongly defended at door and window of which house the back commanded the ditch in manner already described there were assembled three men who regarding each other every now and then with looks expressive of perplexity and expectation sat for some time in profound and gloomy silence one of these was Toby Crackett, another Mr. Chitling, and a third a robber of fifty years, whose nose had been almost beaten in in some old scuffle, and whose face bore a scar which might probably be traced to the same occasion. This man was a return transport, and his name was Caggs. "'I wish,' said Toby, turning to Mr. Chitling, "'that you had picked out some other crib when the two old ones got too warm, and had not come here, my fine fella. "'Why didn't you?' "'Blunderhead!' said Caggs. "'Well, I thought you'd have been a little more glad to see me than this,' replied Mr. Chitling, with a melancholy air. "'Why, lucky young gentleman,' said Toby, "'when a man keeps himself so very exclusive as I have done, and by that means as a snug house over his head, with nobody a-prying and smelling about it. It's rather a startling thing to have the honour of a visit from a young gentleman, however respectable and pleasant a person he may be, to play cards with at conveniency, circumstances you are especially when the exclusive young man has got a friend stopping with him that's arrived sooner than was expected from foreign parts and is too modest to want to be presented to the judges on his return added mr Kags. there was a short silence after which toby crackit seeming to abandon as hopeless any further effort to maintain his usual devil-may-care swagger turned to chitling and said when was fagin took then just at dinner time, two o'clock this afternoon, Charlie and I made a lucky up the washer's chimney, and Bolter got into the empty water butt, head downwards. But his legs were so precious long that they stuck out at the top, and so they took him too. And Bet, poor Bet, she went to see the body to speak to who it was. Replied Chitling, his countenance falling more and more, and went off mad, screaming and raving, and beating her head against the boards so they put a straight waistcoat on her, and took her to the hospital, and there she is. "'What's come o' young Bates?' demanded Caggs. "'He hung about not to come over here afore dark, but he'll be here soon,' replied Chitling. "'There's nowhere else to go now, for the people at the Cripples are all in custody, and the bar o' the Cairn—I went up there to see it with my own eyes—is filled with traps.' "'This is a smash,' observed Toby, biting his lips. "'There's more than one'll go with this.' "'The sessions are on,' said Caggs. "'If they get the inquest over, and Boulter turns King's evidence, as of course he will, from what he's said already, they can prove Fagin an accessory before the fact, and get the trial on on Friday, and he'll swing in six days from this by goat.' "'You should have heard the people groan,' said Chitling. "'The officers fought like devils, or they'd have torn him away. He was down once, but they made a ring round him, and fought their way along.' You should have seen how he looked about him, all muddy and bleeding, and clung to them as if they were his dearest friends. I can see him now, not able to stand upright with the pressing of the mob, and dragging him along amongst them. I can see the people jumping in, one behind another, and snarling with their teeth and making at him. I can see the blood upon his hair and beard, and hear the cries with which the women worked themselves into the centre of the crowd at the street corner, and swore they'd tear his heart out. The horror-stricken witness of this scene pressed his hands upon his ears, and with his eyes closed got up and paced violently to and fro, like one distracted. While he was thus engaged, and the two men sat by in silence with their eyes fixed upon the floor, a pattering noise was heard upon the stairs, and Sykes's dog bounded into the room. They ran to the window, downstairs and into the street. The dog had jumped in at an open window. He made no attempt to follow them, nor was his master to be seen. "'What's the meaning of this?' said Toby, when they had returned. "'He can't be coming here. i I hope not.' "'If he was coming here he'd have come with the dog,' said Caggs, stooping down to examine the animal who lay panting on the floor. Yeah, give us some water for him. He's run himself faint.' "'He's drunk it all up, every drop,' said Chitling, after watching the dog, some time in silence. "'Covered with mud? Lime, half-blind. He must have come a long way." "'Where can he have come from?' exclaimed Toby. "'He's been to the other kens, of course, and finding them filled with strangers come on here, where he's been many a time an orphan. But where can he have come from first, and how comes he here alone without the other?' "'He—none of them call the murderer by his old name—he can't have made away with himself. What do you think?' said Chitling. Toby shook his head. If he had, said Caggs, the dog would want to lead us away to where he did it. Now I think he's got out of the country, and left the dog behind. He must have given him the slip somehow, or he wouldn't be so easy." This solution, appearing the most probable one, was adopted as a right. The dog, creeping under a chair, coiled himself up to sleep, without more notice from anybody. It being now dark, the shutter was closed, and a candle lighted and placed upon the table. The terrible events of the last two days had made a deep impression on all three, increased by the danger and uncertainty of their own position. They drew their chairs closer together, starting at every sound, they spoke little, and that in whispers, and were as silent and awe-stricken as if the remains of the murdered woman lay in the next room. They had sat thus some time, when suddenly was heard a hurried knocking at the door below. "'Young Bates!' said Caggs, looking angrily round to check the fear he felt himself. The knocking came again. No, it wasn't he. He never knocked like that. Crackit went to the window, and, shaking all over, drew in his head. There was no need to tell them who it was. His pale face was enough. The dog, too, was on the alert in an instant, and ran, whining to the door. "'We must let him in,' he said, taking up the candle. "'Isn't there any help for it?' asked the other man, in a hoarse voice. None. He must come in." "'Don't leave us in the dark,' said Caggs, taking down a candle from the chimney-piece, and lighting it with such a trembling hand that the knocking was twice repeated before he had finished." Crackett went down to the door, and returned, followed by a man with the lower part of his face buried in a handkerchief, and another tied over his head under his hat. He drew them slowly off. Blanched face, sunken eyes, hollow cheeks, beard of three days' growth wasted flesh, short, thick breath. It was the very ghost of Sykes. He laid his hand upon a chair which stood in the middle of the room, but shuddering as he was about to drop into it, and seeming to glance over his shoulder, dragged it back close to the wall, as close as it would go, and grounded it against it and sat down. Not a word had been exchanged. He looked from one to another in silence. If an eye were furtively raised and met his, it was instantly averted. When his hollow voice broke silence they all three started. They seemed never to have heard its tones before. "'Now came that dog here? he asked. "'Alone, three hours ago.' "'Tonight's paper says that Fagin's took. Is it true or a lie?' "'True,' they were silent again. "'Damn you all!' said Sykes, passing his hand across his forehead. "'Have you nothing to say to me?' There was an uneasy movement among them, but nobody spoke. "'You that keep this house,' said Sikes, turning his face to Crackett, "'do you mean to sell me, or let me lie here till this hunt is over?' "'You may stop here if you think it's safe,' returned the person addressed, after some hesitation. Sikes carried his eyes slowly up the wall behind him, rather trying to turn his head than actually doing it, and said, "'Is it—the body—is it buried?' They shook their heads. "'Why isn't it?' he retorted, with the same glance behind him. What do they keep such ugly things above ground for? Who's that knocking?" Crackett intimated, by a motion of his hand as he left the room, that there was nothing to fear, and directly came back with Charlie Bates behind him. Sykes sat opposite the door, so that the moment the boy entered the room he encountered his figure. "'Toby,' said the boy, falling back, as Sykes turned his eyes towards him, "'why didn't you tell me this downstairs?' There had been something so tremendous in the shrinking of the three that the wretched man was willing to propitiate even this lad. Accordingly he nodded, and made as though he would shake hands with him. "'Let me go to some other room,' said the boy, retreating still farther. "'Charlie,' said Sikes, stepping forward, "'don't you—don't you know me?' "'Don't come nearer me,' answered the boy, still retreating, and looking with horror in his eyes upon the murderer's face. "'You monster!' The man stopped halfway, and they looked at each other, but Sykes's eyes sunk gradually to the ground. "'Witness you free!" cried the boy, shaking his clenched fist, and becoming more and more excited as he spoke. "'Witness you free! i I'm not afraid of him. If they come in here after him, I'll give him up. I will. I'll tell you out at once. He may kill me for it if he likes, or if he dares. But if I am here, I'll give him up. I'll give him up if he was to be boiled alive. Murderer! Help!' If there's the pluck of a man among you 3 you'll help me. Murderer! Help! Down with him!' Pouring out these cries, and accompanying them with violent gesticulation, the boy actually threw himself single-handed upon the strong man, and in the intensity of his energy and the suddenness of his surprise, brought him heavily to the ground. The three spectators seemed quite stupefied. They offered no interference, and the boy and man rolled on the ground together, the former heedless of the blows that showered upon him, wrenching his hands tighter and tighter in the garments about the murderer's breast, and never ceasing to call for help with all his might. The contest, however, was too unequal to last long. Sykes had him down, and his knee was on his throat, when Crackit pulled him back with a look of alarm and pointed to the window. There were lights gleaming below, voices in loud and earnest conversation, the tramp of hurried footsteps, and endless they seemed in number, crossing the nearest wooden bridge. One man on horseback seemed to be among the crowd, for there was the noise of hoofs rattling on the uneven pavement. The gleam of lights increased, the footsteps came more thickly and noisily on. Then came a loud knocking at the door, and then a hoarse murmur from such a multitude of angry voices as would have made the boldest quail. "'Help!' shrieked the boy, in a voice that rent the air. "Is here! Break down the door!' "'In the King's name!' cried the voices without and the hoarse cry arose again, but louder. "'Break down the door!' screamed the boy. "'I'll tell you they'll never open it. Run straight to the room where the light is. Break down the door!' Strokes thick and heavy rattled upon the door and lower window-shutters, as he ceased to speak, and a loud huzza burst from the crowd, giving the listener for the first time some adequate idea of its immense extent. "'Open the door of some place where I can lock this screeching hell, babe cried Sikes, fiercely, running to and fro, and dragging the boy now as easily as if he were an empty sack. "'That door! Quick!' He flung him in, bolted it, and turned the key. "'Is the downstairs door fast?' "'Double locked and chained,' replied Crackett, who, with the other two men, still remained quite helpless and bewildered. "'The panels! Are they strong? Lined with sheet-iron. And the windows, too?' "'Yes, and the windows.' "'Damn you!' cried the desperate ruffian, throwing up the sash and menacing the crowd. "'Do your worst! I'll cheat you yet!' Of all the terrific yells that ever fell on mortal ears, none could exceed the cry of the infuriated throng. Some shouted to those who were nearest to set the house on fire, others roared to the officers to shoot him dead. Among them all none showed such fury as the man on horseback, who, throwing himself out of the saddle and bursting through the crowd as if he were parting water, cried beneath the window in a voice that rose above all others, "'Twenty guineas to the man who brings a ladder!' The nearest voices took up the cry, and hundreds echoed it. Some called for ladders, some for sledge-hammers, some ran with torches to and fro as if to seek them, and still came back and roared again. Some spent their breath in impotent curses and execrations some pressed forward with the ecstasy of madmen, and thus impeded the progress of those below, some amongst the boldest attempted to climb up by the water-spout and crevices in the wall, and all waved to and fro in the darkness beneath, like a field of corn moved by an angry wind, and joined from time to time in one loud furious roar. "'The tide!' cried the murderer, as he staggered back into the room, and shut the faces out. "'The tide was in when I came up. "'Give me a rope, a long rope. They're all in front. I may drop into the folly ditch and clear off that way. Give me a rope, or I shall do three more murders and kill myself.' The panic-stricken men pointed to where such articles were kept. The murderer, hastily selecting the longest and strongest cord, hurried up to the housetop. All the windows in the rear of the house had been long ago bricked up, except one small trap in the room where the boy was locked, and that was too small even for the passage of his body. But from this aperture he had never ceased to call on those without to guard the back, and thus, when the murderer emerged at last on the housetop by the door and the roof, a loud shout proclaimed the fact to those in front, who immediately began to pour round, pressing upon each other in an unbroken stream. He planted a board which he had carried up with him for the purpose so firmly against the door that it must be a matter of great difficulty to open it from the inside, and creeping over the tiles looked over the low parapet. The water was out, and the ditch a bed of mud. The crowd had been hushed during these few moments, watching his motions and doubtful of his purpose, but the instant they perceived it and knew it was defeated, they raised a cry of triumphant execration to which all their previous shouting had been whispers. Again and again it rose. Those who were at too great a distance to know its meaning took up the sound. It echoed and re-echoed. It seemed as though the whole city had poured its population out to curse him. On pressed the people from the front on, 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 in a strong, struggling current of angry faces, and here and there a glaring torch to lighten them up and to show them out in all their wrath and passion. The houses on the opposite side of the ditch had been entered by the mob. Sashes were thrown up or torn bodily out. There were tears and tears of faces at every window, cluster upon cluster of people clinging to every housetop, each little bridge, and there were three in sight bent beneath the weight of the crowd upon it. Still the current poured on to find some nook or hole from which to vent their shouts, and only for an instant see the wretch. "'They have him now!' cried a man on the nearest bridge. Hurrah!' The crowd drew light with uncovered heads, and again the shout uprose. "'I will give fifty pounds,' cried an old gentleman from the same quarter, "'to the man who takes him alive. I will remain here till he comes to ask me for it.' There was another roar. At this moment the word was passed among the crowd that the door was forced at last, and that he who had first called for the ladder had mounted into the room. The stream abruptly turned as this intelligence ran from mouth to mouth, and the people at the window, seeing those upon the bridges pouring back, quitted their stations and running into the street joined the concourse that now thronged pell-mell to the spot they had left, each man crushing and striving with his neighbour and all panting with impatience to get near the door and look upon the criminal as the officers brought him out. The cries and shrieks of those who were pressed almost to suffocation, or trampled down and trodden underfoot in the confusion, were dreadful. The narrow ways were completely blocked up, and at this time between the rush of some to regain the space in the front of the house, and the unavailing struggles of others to extricate themselves from the mass, the immediate attention was distracted from the murderer, although the universal eagerness for his capture was, if possible, increased. The man had shrunk down, thoroughly quelled by the ferocity of the crowd and the impossibility of escape. But seeing this sudden change with no less rapidity than it had occurred, he sprang upon his feet, determined to make one last effort for his life by dropping into the ditch, and, at the risk of being stifled, endeavouring to creep away in the darkness and confusion. Roused to new strength and energy, and stimulated by the noise within the house which announced that an entrance had really been effected, he set his foot against a stack of chimneys fastened one end of the rope tightly and firmly round it and with the other made a strong running noose by the aid of his hands and his teeth almost in a second he could let himself down by the cord to within a less distance of the ground than his own height and had his knife ready in his hand to cut it then and drop At the very instant when he brought the loop over his head previous to slipping it beneath his armpits, and when the old gentleman before mentioned, who had clung so tight to the railings of the bridge as to resist the force of the crowd and retain his position, earnestly warned those about him that the man was about to lower himself down, at that very instant the murderer, looking behind him on the roof, threw his arms above his head and uttered a yell of terror. "'The eyes again!' he cried in an unearthly screech. Staggering, as if struck by lightning, he lost his balance and tumbled over the parapet. The noose was on his neck. It ran up with his weight, tight as a bowstring and swift as the arrow it speeds. He fell for five-and-thirty feet. There was a sudden jerk, a terrific convulsion of the limbs, and there he hung, with the open knife clenched in his stiffening hand. The old chimney quivered with a shock, but stood it bravely. The murderer swung lifeless against the wall, and the boy, thrusting aside the dangling body which obscured his view, called to the people to come and take him out for God's sake. A dog, which had lain concealed till now, ran backwards and forwards on the parapet with a dismal howl, and collecting himself for a spring, jumped for the dead man's shoulders. Missing his aim, he fell into the ditch, turning completely over as he went, and striking his head against the stone. Dashed out his brains. End of chapter fifty. Chapter fifty one of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tige Hines. Affording an explanation of more mysteries than one, and comprehending a proposal of marriage with no word of settlement or pin-money. The events narrated in the last chapter were yet but two days old, when Oliver found himself at three o'clock in the afternoon, in a travelling carriage rolling fast towards his native town. Mrs. Maylie and Rose and Mrs. Bedwin and the good doctor were with him, and Mr. Brownlow followed in a post-chaise, accompanied by one other person whose name had not been mentioned. They had not talked much upon the way, for Oliver was in a flutter of agitation and uncertainty, which deprived him of the power of collecting his thoughts, and almost his speech, and appeared to have scarcely less effect upon his companions, who shared it in at least an equal degree. He and the two ladies had been carefully made acquainted by Mr. Brownlow with the nature of the admissions which had been forced from monks, and although they knew the object of their present journey was to complete the work which had been so well begun, Still the whole matter was enveloped in enough of doubt and mystery to leave them in endurance of the most intense suspense. The same kind friend had, with Mr. Losburn's assistance, cautiously stopped all channels of communications through which they could receive intelligence of the dreadful occurrences that had so recently taken place. It was quite true, he said, that they must know them before long, but it might be at a better time than the present, and it could not be at a worse. So they travelled on in silence, each busied with reflections on the object which had brought them together, and no one disposed to give utterance to the thoughts which crowded upon all. But if Oliver, under these influences, had remained silent while they journeyed towards his birthplace by a road he had never seen, how the whole current of his recollections ran back to old times, and what a crowd of emotions were wakened up in his breast, when they turned into that which he had traversed on foot, a poor, houseless, wandering boy, without a friend to help him, or a roof to shelter his head. "'See, there, there!' cried Oliver, eagerly clasping the hand of Rose and pointing out at the carriage window. "'That's the stile I came over. There are the hedges I crept behind, for fear anyone should overtake me and force me back. Yonder is the path across the field, leading to the old house where I was a little child. Oh, Dick, Dick, my dear old friend, if I could only see you now!' "'You will see him soon?' replied Rose, gently taking his folded hands between her own. You shall tell him how happy you are, and how rich you have grown, and that in all your happiness you have none so great as the coming back to make him happy too. Yes, yes," said Oliver, and we'll—we will take him away from here, and have him clothe and taught, and send him to some quiet country place where he may grow strong and well, shall we?" Rose nodded yes, for the boy was smiling through such happy tears that she could not speak. "'You will be kind and good to him, for you are to every one,' said Oliver. "'It will make you cry, I know, to hear what he can tell. But never mind, never mind, it will be all over, and you will smile again, I know that too, to think how changed he is. You did the same with me.' "'He said, God bless you to me when I ran away,' cried the boy, with a burst of affectionate emotion, "'and I will say, God bless you now, and show him how I love him for it.' As they approached the town, and at length drove through its narrow streets, it became matter of no small difficulty to restrain the boy within reasonable bounds. There was Sowerberry's, the undertaker's, just as it used to be, only smaller and less imposing in appearance than he remembered it. There were the well-known shops and houses, with almost every one of which he had some slight incident connected. There was Gamfield's cart—the very cart he used to have, standing at the old public-house door. There was the workhouse, the dreary prison of his youthful days, with its dismal windows frowning upon the street. There was the same lean porter standing at the gate, at sight of whom Oliver involuntarily shrunk back, and then laughed at himself for being so foolish, then cried and then laughed again. There were scores of faces at the doors and windows that he knew quite well. There was nearly everything as if he had left it but yesterday, and all his recent life had been but a happy dream but it was pure, earnest, joyful reality. They drove straight to the door of the chief hotel, which Oliver used to stare up at with awe, and think a mighty palace, but which had somehow fallen off in grandeur and size. And here was Mr. Grimwig, all ready to receive them, kissing the young lady, and the old one too, when they got out of the coach, as if he were the grandfather of the whole party all smiles and kindness and not offering to eat his head no not once not even when he contradicted a very old post-boy about the nearest road to london and maintained he knew it best though he had only once come that way and that time fast asleep there was dinner prepared and there were bedrooms ready and everything was arranged as if by magic notwithstanding all this when the hurry of the first half-hour was over The same silence and constraint prevailed that had marked their journey down. Mr. Brownlow did not join them at dinner, but remained in a separate room. The two other gentlemen hurried in and out with anxious faces, and during the short intervals when they were present conversed apart. Once Mrs. Maylie was called away, and after being absent for nearly an hour, returned with eyes swollen and weeping. All these things made Rose and Oliver, who were not in any new secrets, nervous and uncomfortable. They sat wondering in silence, though, if they exchanged a few words, spoke in whispers, as if they were afraid to hear the sound of their own voices. At length, when nine o'clock had come, and they began to think they were to hear no more that night, Mr. Losburn and Mr. Grimwig entered the room, followed by Mr. Brownlow and a man whom Oliver almost shrieked with surprise to see, for they told him it was his brother, and it was the same man he had met at the market-town, and seen looking in with Fagin at the window of his little room. Monks cast a look of hate, which even then he could not dissemble, at the astonished boy, and sat down near the door. Mr. Brownlow, who had papers in his hand, walked to a table near which Rose and Oliver were seated. "'This is a painful task,' said he. "'But these declarations, which have been signed in London before many gentlemen, must be in substance repeated here. I would have spared you the degradation, but we must hear them from your own lips before we part, and you know why.' "'Go on.' Said the person addressed, turning away his face. Quick, I have almost done enough, I think. Don't keep me here. This child, said Mr. Brownlow, drawing Oliver to him and laying his hand upon his head, is your half-brother, the illegitimate son of your father, my dear friend Edwin Leaford, by poor young Agnes Fleming, who died in giving him birth. Yes, said Monk, scowling at the trembling boy, the beating of whose heart he might have heard. "'That is the bastard, child!' "'The term you use,' said Mr. Brownlow sternly, "'is a reproach to those long since passed beyond the feeble censures of the world. It reflects disgrace on no one living except you who use it. Let that pass. He was born in this town.' "'In the workhouse of this town,' was the sullen reply. "'You have the story there.' He pointed impatiently to the papers as he spoke. "'I must have it here, too,' said Mr. Brownlow, looking round upon the listeners listen then you returned monks his father being taken ill at rome was joined by his wife my mother from whom he had been long separated who went from paris and took me with her to look after his property for what i know for she had no great affection for him nor he for her he knew nothing of us for his senses were gone and he slumbered on till next day when he died among the papers in his desk were two dated on the night his illness first came on directed to yourself he addressed himself to mr brownlow and enclosed in a few short lines to you, with an intimation on the cover of the package that it was not to be forwarded till after he was dead. One of these papers was a letter to this girl, Agnes, the other a will." "'What of the letter?' asked Mr. Brownlow. "'The letter. A sheet of paper crossed and cross again with a penitent confession, and prayers to God to help her. He had palmed a tale on the girl that some secret mystery, to be explained one day, prevented his marrying her just then and so she had gone on trusting patiently to him until she trusted too far and lost what none could ever give her back she was at that time within a few months of her confinement he told her all that he meant to do to hide her shame if he had lived and prayed her if he died not to curse his memory or to think the consequences of their sin would be visited on her or their young child for all the guilt was his he reminded her of the day he had given her the little locket and the ring with her christian name engraved upon it and a blank left for that which he hoped one day to have bestowed upon her, prayed her yet to keep it, and wear it next her heart, as she had done before, and then ran on wildly in the same words over and over again, as if he had gone distracted. I believe he had. "'The will,' said Mr. Brownlow, as Oliver's tears fell fast. Monks was silent. "'The will,' said Mr. Brownlow, speaking for him, was in the same spirit as the letter. He talked of miseries which his wife had brought upon him of the rebellious disposition, vice, malice, and premature bad passions of you, his only son, who had been trained to hate him, and left you and your mother each an annuity of eight hundred pounds. The bulk of his property he divided into two equal portions, one for Agnes Fleming, and the other for their child, if he should be born alive and ever come of age. If it were a girl, it was to inherit the money unconditionally if a boy, only on the stipulation that in his minority he should never have stained his name with any public act of dishonour, meanness, cowardice, or wrong. He did this, he said, to mark his confidence in the other, and his conviction, only strengthened by approaching death, that the child would share her gentle heart, and noble nature. If he were disappointed in this expectation, then the money was to come to you. For then—and not till then— when both children were equal, would he recognise your prior claim upon his purse, who had none upon his heart, but had, from an infant, repulsed them with coldness and aversion?' "'My mother,' said Monks, in a louder tone, "'did what a woman should have done. She burnt his will. The letter never reached its destination, but that and other proofs she kept, in case they ever tried to lie away the blot.' The girl's father had the truth from her with every aggravation that her violent hate—I love her for it now—could add. Goaded by shame and dishonour, he fled with his children to a remote corner of Wales, changing his very name that his friends might never know of his retreat, and there, no great while afterwards, he was found dead in his bed. The girl had left her home, in secret, some weeks before. He had searched for her on foot, in every town and village near. It was on the night when he returned home, assured that she had destroyed herself to hide her shame and his, that his old heart broke. There was a short silence here, until Mr. Brownlow took up the thread of the narrative. Years after this, he said, this man's—Edward Learford's—mother came to me. He had left her when only eighteen, robbed her of jewels and money, gambled, squandered, forged, and fled to London. Where for two years he had associated with the lowest outcasts. She was sinking under a painful and incurable disease, and wished to recover him before she died. Inquiries were set on foot and strict searches made. They were unavailing for a long time, but ultimately successful, and he went back with her to France. There she died, said Monks, after a lingering illness, and on her deathbed she bequeathed these secrets to me together with her unquenchable and deadly hatred of all whom they involved, though she need not have left me that, for I had inherited it long before. She would not believe that the girl had destroyed herself and the child too, but was filled with the impression that a male child had been born and was alive. I swore to her, if ever it crossed my path, to hunt it down, never to let it rest, to pursue it with the bitterest and most unrelenting animosity to vent upon it the hatred that I deeply felt, and to spit upon the empty vaunt of that insulting will by dragging it, if I could, to the very gallows foot. She was right. He came in my way at last. I began well, and but for babbling drabs I would have finished as I began." As the villain folded his arms tight together, and muttered curses on himself in the impotence of baffled malice, Mr. Brownlow turned to the terrified group beside him and explained that a jew who had been his old accomplice and confidant had a large reward for keeping oliver ensnared of which some part was to be given up in the event of his being rescued and that a dispute on this head had led to their visit to the country house for the purpose of identifying him the locket and ring said mr brownlow turning to monks i bought them from the man and woman i told you of who stole them from the nurse who stole them from the corpse answered monks without raising his eyes you know what became of them Mr. Brownlow merely nodded to Mr. Grimwig, who, disappearing with great alacrity, shortly returned, pushing in Mrs. Bumble and dragging her unwilling consort after him. "'Do my eyes deceive me?' cried Mr. Bumble, with ill-feigned enthusiasm. "'Or is that little Oliva? "'Oh, Oliva, if you knew how I'd been a-grieving for you—' "'Hold your tongue, fool!' murmured Mrs. Bumble. "'It's nature—nature, Mrs. Bumble,' remonstrated the workhouse master. "'Can't I be supposed to feel? I as brought him up parochially, when I see him as sitting here among ladies and gentlemen of the very affablest description. I always loved that boy as if he'd been my—my—my my, my own grandfather,' said Mr. Bumble, halting for an appropriate comparison. "'Master Oliver, my dear, you remember the blessed gentleman in the white waistcoat? Ah, he went to heaven last week, in a out-coffin with plated handles, Oliver.' "'Come, sir,' said Mr. Grimwig, tartly, "'suppress your feelings!' "'I will do my endeavour, sir,' replied Mr. Bumble. "'How do you do, sir? I hope you are very well.' This salutation was addressed to Mr. Brownlow, who had stepped up to within a short distance of the respectable couple. He inquired, as he pointed to Monks, "'Do you know that person?' "'No,' replied Mrs. Bumble, flatly. "'Perhaps you don't,' said Mr. Brownlow, addressing her spouse. "'I never saw him in my life,' said Mr. Bumble. "'Nor sold him anything, perhaps?' "'No,' replied Mrs. Bumble. "'You never had, perhaps, a certain gold locket and ring?' said Mr. Brownlow. "'Certainly not,' replied the matron. "'Why are we brought here to answer to such nonsense as this?' Again Mr. Brownlow nodded to Mr. Grimwig, and again that gentleman limped away with extraordinary readiness. But not again did he return with a stout man and wife. For this time he led in two palsied women, who shook and tottered as they walked. "'You shut the door the night old Sally died,' said the foremost one, raising her shrivelled hand. "'But you couldn't shut out the sound, nor stop the chinks.' "'No, now, said the other, looking round her and wagging her toothless jaws. Now, no, no!' no we heard her try to tell you what she'd done and saw so you take the paper from her hand and watched you two next day to the pawnbroker's shop said so the first yes added the second and it was a locket and gold ring we found that out and saw it given you we were by oh we were by and we know more than that resumed the first for she told us often long ago that the young mother had told her that feeling she would never get over it she was on her way at the time that she was taken ill to die near the grave of the father of the child would you like to see the pawnbroker himself asked mr grimwig with a motion towards the door no replied the woman if he she pointed to monks Has been coward enough to confess as i see he has and you have sounded all these hags till you have found the right ones i have nothing more to say i did sell them and they're where you'll never get them what then nothing replied mr brownlow except that it remains for us to take care that neither of you is employed in a situation of trust again you may leave the room i hope said mr bumble looking about him with great ruefulness as mr grimwig disappeared with the two old women "'I hope that this unfortunate little circumstance will not deprive me of my parochial office.' "'Indeed it will,' replied Mr. Brownlow. "'You may make up your mind to that, and think yourself well off besides.' "'It was all Mrs. Bumble. She would do it,' urged Mr. Bumble, first looking round to ascertain that his partner had left the room. "'That is no excuse,' replied Mr. Brownlow. "'You were present on the occasion of the destruction of these trinkets and, indeed, are the more guilty of the two in the eye of the law, for the law supposes that your wife acts under your direction.' "'If the law supposes that,' said Mr. Bumble, squeezing his hat emphatically in both hands, "'the law is an ass, an idiot. If that is the eye of the law, the law is a bachelor. And the worst I wish the law is, that his eye may be opened by experience—by experience.' By experience. Laying great stress on the repetition of these two words, Mr. Bumble fixed his hat on very tight, and putting his hands in his pockets, followed his helpmate downstairs. "'Young lady,' said Mr. Brownlow, turning to Rose, "'give me your hand. Do not tremble. You need not fear to hear the few remaining words we have to say.' "'If they have—I do not know how they can—but if they have—any reference to me,' said Rose, "'pray, let me hear them at some other time.' I have not strength or spirits now.' "'Nay,' returned the old gentleman, drawing her arm through his. You have more fortitude than this, I am sure. Do you know this young lady, sir?' "'Yes,' replied Monks. "'I never saw you before,' said Rose, faintly. "'I have seen you—often,' returned Monks. "'The father of the unhappy Agnes had two daughters,' said Mr. Brownlow. What was the fate of the other—the child?' The child, replied Monks, when her father died in a strange place, in a strange name, without a letter, book or scrap of paper that yielded the faintest clue by which his friends or relatives could be traced, the child was taken by some wretched cottagers, who reared it as their own. "'Go on,' said Mr. Brownlow, signing to Mrs. Mayley to approach. Go on.' "'You couldn't find the spot to which these people had repaired,' said Mr. Monks. "'But where friendship fails hatred will often force a way. My mother found it, after a year of cunning search—ay, and found the child. She took it, did she?" No. The people were poor, and began to sicken—at least the man did—of their fine humanity. So she left it with them, giving them a small present of money which would not last long, and promised more which she never meant to send. She didn't quite rely, however, on their discontent and poverty for the child's unhappiness, but told the history of the sisters' shame, with such alterations as suited her bade them to take good heed of the child, for she came of bad blood, and told them she was illegitimate, and sure to go wrong at one time or other. The circumstances countenanced all this, the people believed it, and there the child dragged on an existence, miserable enough even to satisfy us, until a widow lady, residing then at Chester, saw the girl by chance, pitied her, and took her home. There was some cursed spell, I think, against us, for in spite of all our efforts she remained there and was happy. I lost sight of her two or three years ago, and saw her no more until a few months back. Do you see her now?' "'Yes, leaning on your arm.' "'But none the less, my niece,' cried Mrs. Mayley, folding the fainting girl in her arms, "'not the less, my dearest child! I could not lose her now, for all the treasures of the world—my sweet companion, my own dear girl!' "'The only friend I ever had,' cried Rose, clinging to her the kindest best of friends my heart will burst i cannot bear all this you have borne more and have been through all the best and gentlest creature that ever shed happiness on every one she knew said mrs maylie embracing her tenderly come come my love remember who this is who waits to clasp you in his arms poor child see here look look my dear not aunt cried oliver throwing his arms about her neck i'll never call her aunt sister, my own dear sister, that something taught my heart to love so dearly from the first! Rose, dear darling Rose!" Let the tears which fell, and the broken words which were exchanged in the long close embrace between the orphans, be sacred. A father, sister, and mother were gained and lost in that one moment. Joy and grief were mingled in the cup, but there were no bitter tears for even grief itself arose so softened, and clothed in such sweet and tender recollections, that it became a solemn pleasure, and lost all character of pain. They were a long, long time alone. A soft tap at the door, at length, announced that someone was without. Oliver opened it, glided away, and gave place to Harry Nayley. "'I know it all,' he said, taking a seat beside the lovely girl. "'Dear Rose, I know it all.' I am not here by accident," he added, after a lengthened silence, "'nor have I heard all this to-night, for I knew it yesterday, only yesterday. Do you guess that I have come to remind you of a promise?' "'Stay,' said Rose. "'You do know all?' "'All. You gave me leave, at any time within a year, to renew the subject of our last discourse?' "'I did. Not to press you to alter your determination,' pursued the young man, but to hear you repeat it, if you would. I was to lay whatever of station or fortune I might possess at your feet, and if you still adhered to your former determination, I pledged myself by no word or act to seek to change it.' "'The same reasons which influenced me then will influence me now,' said Rose, firmly. "'If I ever owed a strict and rigid duty to her whose goodness saved me from a life of indigence and suffering, when should I ever feel it as I should to-night?' "'It is a struggle,' said Rose, "'but one I am proud to make. It is a pang but one my heart shall bear. The disclosure of to-night," Harry began— "'The disclosure of to-night,' replied Rose softly, "'leaves me in the same position with reference to you as that in which I stood before.' "'You harden your heart against me, Rose,' urged her lover. "'Oh, Harry, Harry,' said the young lady, bursting into tears, "'I wish I could, and spare myself this pain.' "'Then why inflict it on yourself?' said Harry, taking her hand. "'Think, dear Rose think what you have heard to-night.' "'And what have I heard? What have I heard?' cried Rose, that a sense of his disgrace so worked upon my own father that he shunned all. There! We have said enough, Harry, we have said enough.' "'Not yet, not yet,' said the young man, detaining her as she rose. "'My hopes, my wishes, prospects, feeling, every thought in life except my love for you, have undergone a change. I offer you now no distinction among a bustling crowd.' no mingling with a world of malice and detraction, where the blood is called into honest cheeks by aught but real disgrace and shame. But a home, a heart and home—yes, my dearest Rose, and those, and those alone, are all I have to offer." "'What do you mean?' she faltered. "'I mean but this, that when I left you last, I left with a firm determination to level all fancied barriers between yourself and me, resolved that if my world could not be yours. I would make yours mine, that no pride of birth should curl the lip at you, for I would turn from it. This I have done. Those who have shrunk from me because of this have shrunk from you, and proved you so far right. Such power and patronage, such relatives of influence and rank, as smiled upon me then, look coldly now. But there are smiling fields and waving trees in England's richest county, and by one village church—mine, Rose, my own—there stands a rustic dwelling which you can make me prouder of than all the hopes I have renounced, measured a thousandfold. This is my rank and station now, and here I lay it down." "'It's a trying thing, waiting supper for lovers,' said Mr. Grimwig, waking up and pulling his pocket-handkerchief from over his head. Truth to tell, the supper had been waiting a most unreasonable time. Neither Mrs. Mayley, nor Harry, nor Rose, who all came in together, could offer a word in extenuation i had serious thoughts of eating my head to-night said mr grimwig for i began to think i should get nothing else i'll take the liberty if you'll allow me of saluting the bride that is to be mr grimwig lost no time in carrying this notice into effect upon the blushing girl and the example being contagious was followed both by the doctor and mr brownlow some people affirm that harry maylie had been observed to set it originally in a dark adjoining room but the best authorities consider this downright scandal, he being young and a clergyman. "'Oliver, my child,' said Mrs. Mayley, "'where have you been? and why do you look so sad? There are tears stealing down your face at this moment. What is the matter?' This is a world of disappointment, often to the hopes we most cherish, and the hopes that do our nature the greatest honour. Poor Dick was dead. End of chapter fifty-one. Chapter fifty two of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tyge Hines. Fagin's Last Night Alive. The court was paved from floor to roof with human faces. Inquisitive and eager eyes peered from every inch of space, from the rail before the dock away to the sharpest angle of the smallest corner in the galleries all looks were fixed upon one man fagin before him and behind above below on the right and on the left he seemed to stand surrounded by a firmament all bright with gleaming eyes he stood there in all this glare of living light with one hand resting on the wooden slab before him the other held to his ear and his head thrust forward to enable him to catch with greater distinctness every word that fell from the presiding judge, who was delivering his charge to the jury. At times he turned his eyes sharply upon them, to observe the effect of the slightest featherweight in his favour, and when the points against him were stated with terrible distinctness, looked towards his counsel, in mute appeal that he would, even then, urge something in his behalf. Beyond these manifestations of anxiety he stirred not hand or foot. He had scarcely moved since the trial began, and now that the judge ceased to speak he still remained in the same strained attitude of close attention, with his gaze bent upon him, as though he listened still. A slight bustle in the court recalled him to himself. Looking round he saw that the jurymen had turned together to consider their verdict. As his eyes wandered to the gallery, he could see the people rising above each other to see his face, some hastily applying their glasses to their eyes, and others whispering their neighbours with looks expressive of abhorrence. A Few there were who seemed unmindful of him, and looked only to the jury in impatient wonder how they could delay. But in no one face, not even among the women, of whom there were many there, could he read the faintest sympathy with himself or any feeling but one of all absorbing interest that he should be condemned. As he saw all this in one bewildered glance, the death-like stillness came again, and looking back he saw that the jurymen had turned towards the judge. Hush! They only sought permission to retire. He looked wistfully into their faces, one by one, when they passed out, as though to see which way the greater number lent. But that was fruitless. The jailer touched him on the shoulder. He followed mechanically to the end of the dock, and sat down on a chair. The man pointed it out, or he would not have seen it. He looked up into the gallery again. Some of the people were eating, and some fanning themselves with handkerchiefs, for the crowded place was very hot. There was one young man sketching his face in a little notebook. He wondered whether it was like, and looked on when the artist broke his pencil-point, and made another with his knife, as any idle spectator might have done. In the same way, when he turned his eyes towards the judge, his mind began to busy itself with the fashion of his dress, and what it cost, and how he put it on. There was an old fat gentleman on the bench, too, who had gone out some half an hour before, and now come back. He wondered within himself whether this man had been to get his dinner, and what he had had, and where he had had it, and pursued this train of careless thought, until some new object caught his eye and roused another not that all this time his mind was for an instant free from one oppressive overwhelming sense of the grave that opened at his feet it was ever present to him but in a vague and general way and he could not fix his thoughts upon it thus even while he trembled and turned burning hot at the idea of speedy death he fell to counting the iron spikes before him and wondering how the head of one had been broken off and whether they would mend it or leave it as it was Then he thought of all the horrors of the gallows and the scaffold, and stopped to watch a man sprinkling the floor to cool it, and then went on to think again. At length there was a cry of silence, and a breathless look from all towards the door. The jury returned, and passed him close. He could glean nothing from their faces—they might as well have been of stone. Perfect stillness ensued—not a rustle, not a breath. Guilty. The building rang with a tremendous shout, and another, and another, and then it echoed loud groans that gathered strength as they swelled out like angry thunder. It was a peal of joy from the populace outside, greeting the news that he would die on Monday. The noise subsided, and he was asked if he had anything to say why sentence of death should not be passed upon him. He had resumed his listening attitude, and looked intently at his questioner while the demand was made. But it was twice repeated before he seemed to hear it and then he only muttered that he was an old man an old man an old man and so dropping into a whisper was silent again the judge assumed the black cap and the prisoner stood still with the same air and gesture a woman in the gallery uttered some exclamation called forth by this dread solemnity he looked hastily up as if angry at the interruption and bent forward yet more attentively The address was solemn and impressive, the silence fearful to hear. But he stood like a marble figure without the motion of a nerve. His haggard face was still thrust forward, his under-jaw hanging down, and his eyes staring out before him when the jailer put his hand upon his arm and beckoned him away. He gazed stupidly about him for an instant and obeyed. They led him through a paved room under the court, where some prisoners were waiting till their turns came and others were talking to their friends who crowded round a grate which looked into the open yard. There was nobody there to speak to him, but as he passed the prisoners fell back to render him more visible to the people who were clinging to the bars, and they assailed him with opprobrious names and screeched and hissed. He shook his fist and would have spat upon them, but his conductors hurried him on through a gloomy passage lighted by a few dim lamps into the interior of the prison. Here he was searched that he might not have about him the means of anticipating the law. This ceremony performed, they led him to one of the condemned cells, and left him there alone. He sat down on a stone bench opposite the door, which served for seat and bedstead, and casting his bloodshot eyes upon the ground, tried to collect his thoughts. After a while he began to remember a few disjointed fragments of what the judge had said, though it had seemed to him at the time that he could not hear a word. These gradually fell into their proper places, and by degrees suggested more, so that in a little time he had the whole almost as it was delivered. To be hanged by the neck till he was dead. That was the end—to be hanged by the neck till he was dead. As it came on very dark he began to think of all the men he had known who had died upon the scaffold, some of them through his means. They rose up in such quick succession that he could hardly count them. He had seen some of them die, and had joked too, because they died with prayers upon their lips. With what a rattling noise the drop went down, and how suddenly they changed from strong and vigorous men to dangling heaps of clothes! Some of them might have inhabited that very cell, sat upon that very spot. It was very dark. Why didn't they bring a light? The cell had been built for many years. Scores of men must have passed their last hours there. It was like sitting in a vault strewn with dead bodies—the cap, the noose, the pinioned arms—the faces that he knew, even beneath that hideous veil. Light! Light! At length, when his hands were raw with beating against the heavy door and walls, two men appeared, one bearing a candle which he thrust into an iron candlestick fixed against the wall, the other dragging in a mattress on which to pass the night, for the prisoner was to be left alone no more. Then came the night—dark, dismal, silent night. Other watchers are glad to hear this church-clock strike, for they tell of life and coming day. To him they brought despair. The boom of every iron bell came laden with one deep, hollow sound—death. What availed the noise and bustle of cheerful morning which penetrated even there to him? It was another form of knell, with mockery added to the warning. The day passed off. Day. There was no day. It was gone as soon as it came, and night came on again. Night so long and yet so short, long in its dreadful silence, and short in its fleeting hours. At one time he raved and blasphemed, at another he howled and tore his hair. Venerable men of his own persuasion had come to pray beside him, but he had driven them away with curses. They renewed their charitable efforts, and he beat them off. Saturday night He had only one night more to live, and, as he thought of this, the day broke—Sunday. It was not until the night of this last awful day that a withering sense of his helpless, desperate state came in its full intensity upon his blighted soul—not that he had ever held any defined or positive hope of mercy, but that he had never been able to consider more than the dim probability of dying so soon. He had spoken little to either of the two men. Who relieved each other in their attendance upon him, and they, for their parts, made no effort to rouse his attention. He had sat there awake, but dreaming. Now he started up every minute, and with gasping mouth and burning skin hurried to and fro, in such a paroxysm of fear and wrath, that even they, used to such sights, recoiled from him with horror. He grew so terrible at last, in all the tortures of his evil conscience, that one man could not bear to sit there eyeing him alone so the two kept watch together. He cowered down upon a stone bed, and thought of the past. He had been wounded with some missiles from the crowd on the day of his capture, and his head was bandaged with a linen cloth. His red hair hung down upon his bloodless face, his beard was torn and twisted into knots, his eyes shone with a terrible light, his unwashed flesh cracked with the fever that burnt him up. Eight, nine, ten—if it was not a trick to frighten him and those were the real hours treading on each other's heels, where would he be when they came round again? 11. Another struck before the voice of the previous hour had ceased to vibrate. At eight he would be the only mourner in his own funeral train. At 11. Those dreadful walls of Newgate, which have hidden so much misery and such unspeakable anguish, not only from the eyes, but too often and too long, from the thoughts of men, never held so dread a spectacle as that. The few who lingered as they passed, and wondered what the man was doing, who was to be hanged to-morrow, would have slept but ill that night, if they could have seen him. From early in the evening until early midnight, little groups of two and three presented themselves at the lodge gate, and inquired with anxious faces whether any reprieve had been received. These being answered in the negative, communicated the welcome intelligence to clusters in the street, who pointed out to one another the door from which he must come out, and showed where the scaffold would be built, and, walking with unwilling steps away, turned back to conjure up the scene. By degrees they fell off one by one, and for an hour in the dead of night the street was left to solitude and darkness. The space before the prison was cleared, and a few strong barriers painted black had been already thrown across the road to break the pressure of the expected crowd, when Mr. Brownlow and Oliver appeared at the wicket, and presented an order of admission to the prisoner signed by one of the sheriffs. They were immediately admitted into the lodge. "'Is this young gentleman to come too, sir?' said the man, whose duty it was to conduct them. "'It's not a sight for children, sir.' "'It is not indeed, my friend,' rejoined Mr. Brownlow, "'but my business with this man is intimately connected with him, and as this child has seen him in the full career of a success in villainy, I think it is well, even at the cost of some pain and fear, that he should see him now.' These few words had been said apart, so as to be inaudible to Oliver. The man touched his hat, and, glancing at Oliver with some curiosity, opened another gate opposite to that by which they had entered, and led them on through dark and winding ways towards the cells. This, said the man, stopping in a large passage, where a couple of workmen were making some preparations in profound silence, this is the place he passes through. If you step this way you can see the door he goes out at. He led them into a stone kitchen, fitted with coppers for dressing the prison food, and pointed to a door. There was an open grating above it, through which came the sound of men's voices, mingled with the noise of hammering and the throwing down of boards. They were putting up the scaffold. From this place they passed through several strong gates, opened by other turnkeys from the inner side, and, having entered an open yard, ascended a flight of narrow steps and came into a passage, with a row of strong doors on the left hand. Motioning them to remain where they were, the turnkey knocked at one of these with his bunch of keys. The two attendants, after a little whispering, came out into the passage, stretching themselves as if glad of the temporary relief, and motioned the visitors to follow the gaoler into the cell. They did so. The condemned criminal was seated on his bed, rocking himself from side to side, with a countenance more like that of a snared beast than the face of a man. His mind was evidently wandering to his old life. For he continued to mutter without appearing conscious of their presence otherwise than as part of his vision, good boy, Charlie, well done, he mumbled, Oliver too, ha <laughs> ha, Oliver too, cried the gentleman now, quite the take that boy away to bed. The jailer took the disengaged hand of Oliver and whispering him not to be alarmed, looked on without speaking. Take him away to bed, cried Fagin. Do you hear me, some of you? He's been the the—somehow the cause of all this. It's worth the money to bring him up to it. Boulter's throat, Bill. Never mind the girl. Boulter's throat as deep as you can cut. Saw his head off." "'Fagin,' said the jailer. "'That's me,' cried the Jew, falling instantly into the attitude of listening he had assumed upon his trial. "'An old man, my lord—a very old, old man.' here said the turnkey laying his hand upon his breast to keep him down near somebody wants to see you to ask you some questions i suppose fagin fagin are you a man i shan't be one long he replied looking up with a face retaining no human expression but rage and terror strike em all dead what right have they to butcher me as he spoke he caught sight of oliver and mr brownlow shrinking to the furthest corner of the seat He demanded to know what they wanted there. "'Steady,' said the turnkey, still holding him down. Now, sir, tell him what you want—quick, if you please, for he grows worse as the time goes on.' "'You have some papers,' said Mr. Brownlow, advancing, which were placed in your hands for better security by a man called Monk's. "'It's a lawyer together,' replied Fagin. "'I haven't one—not one.' "'For the love of God,' said Mr. Brownlow solemnly. Do not say that now, upon the very verge of death, but tell me where they are. You know that Sikes is dead, that Monks has confessed, that there is no hope of any further gain. Where are those papers?' "'Oliver!' cried Fagin, beckoning to him. "'Here, here, let me whisper to you.' "'I am not afraid,' said Oliver, in a low voice, as he relinquished Mr. Brownlow's hand. "'The papers,' said Fagin, drawing Oliver towards him, are in a canvas bag, in a hole a little way up the chimney in the top-front room. I want to talk to you, my dear, I want to talk to you.' "'Yes, yes,' returned Oliver. "'Let me say a prayer, do, let me say one prayer. Say only one upon your knees with me, and we will talk till morning.' "'Outside, outside!' replied Fagin, pushing the boy before him towards the door, and looking vacantly over his head. "'Say I've gone to sleep they'll believe you. You can get me out, if you take me so. Now, then, now, then!' "'Oh! God forgive this wretched man!' cried the boy, with a burst of tears. "'That's right, that's right,' said Fagin. "'That'll help us on. This door first. If I shake and tremble as we pass the gallows, don't you mind, but hurry on—now, now, now!' "'Have you nothing else to ask him, sir?' inquired the turnkey. "'No other question.' replied Mr. Brownlow, if I hoped we could recall him to a sense of his position. "'Nothing will do that, sir,' replied the man, shaking his head. "'You had better leave him.' The door of the cell opened, and the attendants returned. "'Press on! press on!' cried Fagin. "'Softly, but not too slow. Faster, faster!' The men laid hands upon him, and disengaging Oliver from his grasp, pelled him back. He struggled with the power of desperation for an instant and then sent up cry upon cry that penetrated even those massive walls and rang in their ears until they reached the open yard it was some time before they left the prison oliver nearly swooned after this frightful scene and was so weak that for an hour or more he had not the strength to walk day was dawning when they again emerged a great multitude had already assembled the windows were filled with people smoking and playing cards to beguile the time the crowd were pushing quarrelling joking everything told of life and animation but one dark cluster of objects in the centre of all the black stage the crossbeam the rope and all the hideous apparatus of death end of chapter 52 chapter 53 of oliver twist by charles dickens this librivox recording is in the public domain Recording by Tig Hines. And last. The fortunes of those who have figured in this tale are nearly closed. The little that remains to their historian to relate is told in few and simple words. Before three months had passed, Rose Fleming and Harry Maylie were married in the village church, which was henceforth to be the scene of the young clergyman's labours. On the same day, they entered into possession of their new and happy home. Mrs. Mayley took up her abode with her son and daughter-in-law, to enjoy during the tranquil remainder of her days the greatest felicity that age and worth can know, the contemplation of the happiness of those on whom the warmest affections and tenderest cares of a well-spent life have been unceasingly bestowed. It appears, on full and careful investigation, that if the wreck of property remaining in the custody of monks, which had never prospered in either his hands or those of his mother, were equally divided between himself and Oliver, it would yield to each little more than three thousand pounds. By the provisions of his father's will, Oliver would have been entitled to the whole, but Mr. Brownlow, unwilling to deprive the elder son of the opportunity of retrieving his former vices and pursuing an honest career, proposed this mode of distribution to which his young charge joyfully acceded. Monks, still bearing that assumed name, retired with his portion to a distant part of the New World, where, having quickly squandered it, he once more fell into his old courses, and, after undergoing a long confinement for some fresh act of fraud and knavery, at length sunk under an attack of his old disorder, and died in prison. As far from home died the chief remaining members of his friend Fagin's gang. Mr. Brownlow adopted Oliver as his son. Removing with him and the old housekeeper to within a mile of the parsonage house, where his dear friends resided, he gratified the only remaining wish of Oliver's warm and earnest heart, and thus linked together a little society, whose condition approached as nearly to one of perfect happiness as can ever be known in this changing world. Soon after the marriage of the young people, the worthy doctor returned to Chertsey, where, bereft of the presence of his old friends, he would have been discontented if his temperament had admitted of such a feeling, and would have turned quite peevish if he had known how. For two or three months he contented himself with hinting that he feared the air began to disagree with him. Then finding that the place really no longer was to him what it had been, he settled his business on his assistant, took a bachelor's cottage outside the village of which his young friend was pastor, and instantaneously recovered. Here he took to gardening, planting, fishing, carpentering, and various other pursuits of a similar kind, all undertaken with his characteristic impetuosity. In each and all he has since become famous throughout the neighbourhood, as a most profound authority. Before his removal he had managed to contract a strong friendship for Mr. Grimwig, which that eccentric gentleman cordially reciprocated. He is accordingly visited by Mr. Grimwig a great many times in the course of the year. On all such occasions Mr. Grimwick plants, fishes, and carpenters with great ardour, doing everything in a very singular and unprecedented manner, but always maintaining with his favourite asseveration that his mode is the right one. On Sundays he never fails to criticise the sermon to the young clergyman's face, always informing Mr. Losburn, in strict confidence afterwards, that he considers it an excellent performance, but deems it as well not to say so. It is a standing and very favourite joke for Mr. Brownlow to rally him on his old prophecy concerning Oliver, and to remind him of the night on which they sat with the watch between them waiting his return. But Mr. Grimwig contends that he was right in the main, and, in proof thereof, remarks that Oliver did not come back after all, which always calls forth a laugh on his side, and increases his good humour. Mr. Noah Claypole, receiving a free pardon from the Crown in consequence of being admitted a prover against Fagin, and considering his profession not altogether as safe a one as he could wish, was for some little time at a loss for a means of a livelihood, not burdened with too much work. After some consideration he went into business as an informer, in which calling he realises a genteel subsistence. His plan is to walk out once a week during church-time, attended by Charlotte in respectable attire. The lady faints away at the doors of charitable publicans, and the gentleman, being accommodated with threepenny-worth of brandy to restore her, lays an information next day, and pockets half the penalty. Sometimes Mr. Claypole faints himself, but the result is the same. Mr. and Mrs. Bumble, deprived of their situations, were gradually reduced to great indigence and misery, and finally become paupers in that very same workhouse in which they had once lorded it over others. Mr. Bumble has been heard to say that in this reverse and degradation he has not even spirits to be thankful for being separated from his wife. As to Mr. Giles and Brittle's, they still remain in their old posts, although the former is bald and the last-named boy quite grey. They sleep at the parsonage, but divide their attention so equally among its inmates, and Oliver and Mr. Brownlow and Mr. Losburn, that to this day the villagers have never been able to discover to which establishment they properly belong. Master Charlie Bates, appalled by Sykes's crime, fell into a train of reflection whether an honest life was not, after all, the best. Arriving at the conclusion that it certainly was, he turned his back upon the scenes of the past, resolved to amend it in some new sphere of action. He struggled hard and suffered much for some time, but having a contented disposition and a good purpose, succeeded in the end and, from being a farmer's drudge and a carrier's lad, he is now the merriest young grazier in all Northamptonshire. And now the hand that traces these words falters as it approaches the conclusion of its task, and would weave for a little space longer the thread of these adventures. I would fain linger yet with a few of those among whom I have so long moved, and share their happiness by endeavouring to depict it. I would show Rose Maylie in all the bloom and grace of early womanhood, shedding on her secluded path of life soft and gentle light, that fell on all who it with her and shone into their hearts. I would paint her the life and joy of the fireside circle and the lively summer group. I would follow her through the sultry fields at noon, and hear the low tones of her sweet voice in the moonlit evening walk. I would watch her in all her goodness and charity abroad and the smiling, untiring discharge of domestic duties at home. I would paint her and her dead sister's child happy in their love for one another, and passing whole hours together in picturing the friends whom they had so sadly lost. I would summon before me once again those joyous little faces that clustered round her knee, and listen to their merry prattle. I would recall the tones of that clear laugh, and conjure up the sympathising tear that glistened in the soft blue eye these and a thousand looks and smiles and turns of thought and speech i would fain recall them every one how mr brownlow went on from day to day filling the mind of his adopted child with stores of knowledge and becoming attached to him more and more as his nature developed itself and showed the thriving seeds of all he wished him to become how he traced in him new traits of his early friend that wakened in his own bosom old remembrances, melancholy and yet sweet and soothing. How the two orphans, tried by adversity, remembered its lessons in mercy to others, and mutual love and fervent thanks to him who had protected and preserved them. These are all matters which need not be told. I have said that they were truly happy and without strong affection and humanity of heart, and gratitude to that being whose code is mercy, and whose great attribute is benevolence to all things that breathe, happiness can never be attained. Within the altar of the old village church there stands a white marble tablet, which bears as yet but one word—Agnes. There is no coffin in that tomb, and may it be many, many years before another name is placed above it. But if the spirits of the dead ever come back to earth to visit spots hallowed by the love, the love beyond the grave, of those whom they knew in life, I believe that the shade of Agnes sometimes hovers round that solemn nook. I believe it none the less because that nook is in a church, and she was weak and erring. End of chapter fifty three. That is the end of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens.